0: I'll give it a second to pick up um, the different broadcasting platforms that are that it's going live on now. So anyways, um, all right, so welcome uh, again to another episode of Talking Christianity Apologetics, guys. My name is Josh Gibbs, and today we are going to have a debate. Uh, this debate is going to be with Kenneth Joel, who is representing the biblical Unitarian position. And myself, I'll be representing the Trinitarian position. Uh, so it should be a good, lively debate. Uh, I think there's going to be, um, there, it should be a good conversation. So stay tuned with us, and I'm going to play my introduction video and then kind of give a little bit more introduction to who uh, Ken is and um, um, kind of how this debate came about to happen uh, today to be brought to you live right now. So stay with us, and we'll be right back.
1: Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thanks, that one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friend, you don't know the gospel.
2: The wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If If you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sins
1: what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. And he has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provo- f- provision for them, and they are justly punished for their sins. So the question As my- that for, seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The Extent of the Atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all
0: people. Alright, welcome back, and uh, let's go ahead and jump into our introductions, and I I want to get these guys up on the screen with us uh as well so you can see everybody's face and uh it looks like we've got you up on the screen so in the middle is kenneth joel ken welcome to talking christianity i really have been looking forward to this and it's good to have you on today
1: thank you appreciate it
0: and then on the right we've got tyler hood tyler hood is going to be our moderator uh, so he's going to be keeping the order, keeping, keeping track of the time as well, and uh, just making sure that the conversation today is uh, going to stay organized and on topic and uh, cordial. So Tyler, hey, thanks, man, for coming on and being willing to, to moderate this thing for us. So, My pleasure. That's good. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump into it. I want to put the, um, kind of the format up on the screen so you guys can see that as well. All right, so Kenneth is is Ken's going to get us going um, for each section here and the structure looks like this. We'll do 20 minute introductions uh, for each of us. Uh, Then we'll do 10 minute cross examinations, uh, followed by a 10 minute rebuttal, followed up by a second round of cross examination of seven minutes and then we'll do seven minute closing statements. And then after the closing statements, we're going to open it up to you guys as the audience and uh, if you have questions you can type in your questions or you can call in with your questions totally up to you if you would like to participate in that Uh, if you would like to call in you can do that the number to call is going to be 816-866-0025 and i'll put that up on the screen uh, at the end as well so that you can call in um now because Uh, Because I pretty much run the system and stuff all myself, it's not like I've got a big studio or anything um, or a call center. So um, typically, it should be able to have one, maybe two calls coming in at the same time. Tyler is going to be able to take calls as well. So if you'd want to call in at the end, uh, be sure to do that. 816-866-0025. And uh, you can direct your question to either myself or Ken. Um, But I do, before we get started, I want to talk, um, give Ken a chance um, to kind of describe for you guys what it looks like um, with him and coming to have a debate like this, why it's important to Ken to actually um, debate um, kind of the the deity of Christ, his position as a Unitarian and, um, and go from there. So, Ken, if you would, yeah, just give everybody a kind of an introduction to who you are, how this debate happened and why it's important to you.
1: Sure. Sounds great. Thanks again for having me. Um, I was raised Trinitarian. I uh, I was raised Methodist in the Methodist Church. Uh, my parents, my family were Methodist. Um, I also attended uh, Baptist churches, Southern Baptist churches. And I was, I was taught the Trinity growing up. Uh, I think probably, I don't want to speak for all, all Biblical Unitarians, obviously. I'm just going to speak for myself. But I think it's pretty common that most... Biblical Unitarians were Trinitarian. Uh, the Trinity is the main, quote-unquote, orthodoxy. Uh, so that's what we were taught. That's what most people are taught. Um, and I I grew up and I have, have always, growing up, professed um, outwardly that I believe in the Trinity. Um, growing up, most of the pastors, they didn't get real into detail about, the specifics of the Trinity uh, basically what I heard a lot growing up was that tr- we need to believe in the Trinity okay and the Trinity is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit oh okay that sounds I believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit sounds good <clears throat> sounds fine as I progressed as I got older as I learned more about the Trinity and what I was supposed to be believing It got very interesting Um, I found out well it's a little bit more than just that Um, I I don't know that uh, the pastors were being disingenuous I'm not suggesting that at all but not a whole lot of specifics from from the guys up on stage on Sunday mornings about the specifics it was just basically singing the song blessed Trinity now you don't want me singing but (laughs) (laughs) Father, Son, and Holy Spirit was as deep as it got. Then come to find out, well, it's more than just that. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Oh, okay. And you need to believe that Jesus is God. Oh, I thought Jesus was the Son of God. Well, yeah, He is. And Jesus is God. Uh, There's also this hypostatic union uh, that within the second person of the Trinity, uh, Jesus... Is fully God and fully man. He's 100% God and 100% man. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Um, and it it starts getting really interesting when you when you find out more about the creeds uh, and and the specifics of the hypostatic union and the specifics of uh, well, it's one being, but it's three separate persons. It's it's one being all these three persons are the one god it's one being but three different persons so for example when jesus is praying to the father they're both the same being but it's one person it's the second person of the trinity praying to the first person of the trinity and we're just leaving out the third person of the trinity right here on this specific case so it starts getting very interesting and when i learn more about the the creeds and, and, the, and the councils that, that where the Trinity is developed, and, that's, I'm not, and my position has become that the Trinity has developed over centuries. Um, it becomes very specific and also very convoluted, and uh, even the, the creeds themselves admit that it's incomprehensible. Uh, the Athanasian Creed, for example, says it's incomprehensible, and I would agree with that. Um, so, it became um, relatively easy to dismiss the Trinity as I, as I developed in my theology. Um, and and I also, it also, not only the definition of the Trinity made it easy, but the handful of verses that I kept hearing over and over and over it, it seemed like, and I'm not saying that this is, these are all the verses, but there's about five verses that I hear over and over to point to the Trinity. And there's about another ten verses that I hear over and over and over that point to the deity of Christ. Well, none of those five verses point to the Trinity, and none of those ten verses point to the deity of Christ. So rejecting the Trinity um, was easy for me to do, but it was important that um, that um, I understood the Trinity, and I also understood the verses that are used to prove the Trinity. Um, okay. Um, by the way, clock clockwise. I'm not, Do I have ten minutes left? Oh no,
0: I uh, I I did. I was just asking. I I didn't know that you were doing your introduction um, part of the debate. I was just. Um, so yeah, we can. I, Ty, Tyler, did you have the clock running? I, No. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't want to um, have you keep going there because I didn't know if you were doing your introduction or not. So if, if oh, you yeah. think that you're about 10 minutes in, um, that's, yeah. you think you've got about 10 minutes left for your introduction comments. Um, that's fine. Okay. And okay, real quick, guys, I, I want to cut it back to you, Ken, but I, I do want to give you guys a chance for those of you who are viewing in right now. Um, please uh, go, you can share this link, you can start a watch party. Um, this, it, right now, it's, it's on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Periscope and uh, I think five other video platforms, so... Um, make sure that you share this and like it and subscribe if you haven't subscribed already that way when we come back uh, and do another debate or a conversation like this you can get a notification and uh, not have to get th- you'll get the up- update directly you guys know all that so anyways um, let me turn it back to you Ken. I'm gonna adjust the timer here and put it down to about 10 minutes if that's what you think you've got left and then I'll turn it back to you so okay so
1: um I guess in in rounding out um, the the summary of the the Trinity doctrine, I professed outwardly that I believed in the Trinity, but I I came to realize once I learned more about the Trinity, I never really believed it. I said I did, and I was told that I have to believe it, and I'm a heretic if I don't. All the words, I've heard them all. And by the way, if some of those words slip out, you're not going to hurt my feelings. So I'm a boy, don't worry about that. Heard it all, um, but it, it was, it's, it almost felt like uh, something that was, since this is orthodoxy, um, and I came to realize it's not orthodoxy because orthodoxy means correct teaching, and the Trinity doctrine is completely foreign to what we find in Scripture. Uh, it became uh, easy to, to reject the Trinity in understanding the Trinity and in hearing the same defenses for the trinity over and over and over it became easy to reject i'll give you a quick analogy uh, in college growing up a little bit more about me i won't bore you too much about me but um i was taught evolution uh about the guy up on stage behind a lectern sound familiar um uh, the evolution you can you don't want to be one of the dummies You want to be one of the intellectuals and, and of course you can, you can believe in your little man in the sky if you want, but the smart people believe in evolution. Okay. And and I said openly outwardly, Oh, I believe in evolution because I want to be with the fancy guys. Uh, I don't want to be called names. I, I believe in evolution, but the more I learned about evolution, um, hopefully this analogy is making sense. Um, it's easy to reject. I easily reject evolution. It's complete nonsense. It's not even a good theory. What we actually observe are plants and animals reproducing after their own kind. Um, it's not utilizing the, the scientific method. Uh, so what we observe is not evolution. So I rejected same thing with the Trinity. What we observe isn't here. It's not taught. It's foreign to scripture. Um, so, um, Long story short, I became a Biblical Unitarian based on uh, Scripture and what I find in Scripture. And So let me define Biblical Unitarian. Um, the Biblical part is I, I look to Scripture predominantly. Now, what we have are the English translations. We have a very good idea of what the original Greek said, what the original Hebrew said, we don't have those original manuscripts, but we have a very, very, very good idea um, uh, what 99.9% of what those original texts said, which are God-breathed. Um, so um, the uh, I, I guess I guess what I'm getting at is is um, the the biblical portion is I'm going to look to scripture for the reason for my belief uh that doesn't mean i'm sola scriptura but i guess what i'm saying is i'm about 99 percent sola scriptura i'm pretty darn close um i think you can get personal revelation especially in springtime i mean god's creation's awesome you can you can gain personal revelation but in terms of who is god and who is his son jesus christ i think we need to look to scripture uh for that revelation uh, and um the the that's the biblical portion. The Unitarian portion is what Scripture teaches about God. God is one. God is one being. God is one person. God is not three persons. God is one person. Our heavenly Father is God. Jesus says this um, when he is praying to God. He points out in John seventeen three. Um, this is kind of kind of important. He starts off the verse with, and this is life eternal, so we might want to pay attention to that, Um, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Paul echoes the same teaching, a biblical Unitarian teaching, that there is but one God, the Father, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Ephesians 4, 6. Uh, the intro to all of his epistles sounds something like grace and peace from God, our father, and from our Lord Jesus Christ, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our father and from the Lord Jesus Christ that these are the two distinct beings that the entire Bible is about. And, and, and this Bible is awesome. This Bible this Bible is, is beautiful and amazing and it's alive. And, and when I read the, 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 God and His Son leap out of the page. It's awesome, and and the Trinity doctrine just just falls flat. It it doesn't make any coherent sense. Um, so so anyway, that's what biblical Unitarian means: the one God. When you see the word God, for the most part, we can get into when men are called God, like when Moses is called God, or the judges are called gods. Um, but for the most part. Um, without getting in the weeds God refers to our Heavenly Father and Jesus's Father uh, and the creator of the universe God is the Holy One of Israel God is Spirit John 4 24 Um, so Holy Spirit refers to God these aren't separate persons it's only one person it's only one being that's what Unitarian means Um, and Jesus Christ is not God. The very meaning of the word Christ shows he's not God. Um, The one God is our Heavenly Father. Um, Also, what Biblical Unitarianism is not, it's not the universal Unitarians or Unitarian Universalists. You may have heard that, so don't confuse um, me with them. The Universalists think, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe, man. Just hey, you're good to go. If you want to evangelize, cool, that's great. doesn't really matter because everybody's going to be saved. Uh, I don't believe that. Scripture says how we are saved. Um, And it is by confessing with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, not the God-man Jesus Christ. Confessing with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we believe in our heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, then you shall be saved. That's why I'm saved. That's that's how a Trinitarian is saved. That's how anybody is saved. This What's so amazing is this is available to all nations. Uh, this is not just written to one group of people. This is not just written to one nation, as we saw in the Old Covenant. Uh, the, the great mystery that Paul is revealing in the New Covenant is this is available to all nations, if you believe. If you believe what? If you believe if you hold to the doctrine of Christ that's the doctrine I hold to the doctrine of Christ 2nd uh, John 9 if you hold to the doctrine of Christ you can have both the father and the son gosh I keep leaving out the third person of the Trinity in all these verses um, bad joke. Sorry. Um, the two distinct beings that the entire Bible is about if we hold to the doctrine of Christ we can have them both and i want to have them both um and finally I end end with um you, you asked why is it important is, is it a salvation issue um I, I kind of touched on that already uh it is a it, it is a salvation issue uh what we confess and what we believe yes does the trinity affect our salvation no i don't believe it does there are biblical unitarians that disagree with me uh but, but my position is that the Trinity neither causes you to be saved, and it also does not cause you to not be saved. The Trinity is nonsense. It's, it's an unbiblical concept, but Scripture says how we're saved. So is it a salvation issue? That's a little bit of a slippery slope uh, in terms of the semantics of it. But, but, but yes, who God is and who Jesus Christ is uh, affects our salvation. Uh, in, in my opinion. So it's a very important conversation. It's more than just kind of a theological um, debate. And let, hey, let's see who won the debate. Uh, did Ken win or did Josh win? I don't think this should be about did Ken win or did Josh win. This should be about what does Scripture teach? Because this is the, the Word of God. And we can come to the knowledge of God uh, and of His Son, Jesus Christ, through Scripture. I yield
0: oh, all right looks like yeah you yielded about five seconds left so that's that's pretty good timing there right um let me put this up on the screen for my time and I'll put my camera up so you guys can see that as well reset that clock there Tyler you didn't have to do much you haven't had to do much so far so
2: yeah I feel like a uh, third wheel <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, I think it's appropriate to have a uh, three 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 person panel in a Trinity debate, right?
0: Dude. Yeah, you can't have a Trinity <laughs> debate without three. I mean, yeah, so and and obviously, the three of us are three independent persons. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. i'm I've got the the camera back on me. I'm gonna start the clock here, and i will get going. So, um, let me do the best I can to kind of sum up Ken's uh, arguments. Um, it it, it doesn't really seem like there's a whole lot of a positive presentation for uh, support of biblical Unitarianism. Um, And I'll I'll, I'll talk more about that as I get into my rebuttal. But for those of you who may not be um, completely clear on what his position is, um, I'd like to draw that out more in the cross-examination. But just so you understand where I'm coming from when I give a positive presentation, this is what I'm, I'm attempting to rebut. The, the position that I'm rebutting that Ken holds to is, uh, is um, this right here. So in a conversation that we had on Facebook, I said, so do you believe the Father takes the form of the Son, or do you simply believe the Spirit is the Father who gave a special commission and anointing for the man who was born of the Spirit? And his response is, that, well, that second one is pretty close. And I said, okay, well, I'm not trying to ask any gotcha questions. I just want to understand your position more um and i and i said um okay so obviously the holy spirit in your perspective would be the force or the action of the father to you he is not an independent person and the incarnation is just the birth of a normal human man with a special mission and obviously the father would be the one true god in your opinion Um, and so that's where I say that's a little less clear for me and he says well yes but Jesus is a very unique man he's not just an average sinful man like us I wouldn't worry about all the differences within the biblical Unitarians because we all agree the trinity isn't biblical and that the deity of Christ is not biblical and that's what we're debating alright so that is what I'm attempting to support here I put 10 minutes up on the clock it should be 20 but that's all um sorry let me adjust that i'll just put it up to 18 that should be two minutes all right okay so that's what i'm attempting to um support here is the deity of christ the pre-existence of christ prior to the incarnation and the independent personhood of each member of the trinitarian god that i believe in and and I'll, i'll be more specific as we go along here but uh, Robert Letham, in his book, The Holy Trinity in Scripture, History, Theology, and Worship, says this, Today, most Western Christians are practical modalists. The usual way of referring to God is, quote-unquote, God, or particularly at the popular level, the Lord. It's worth contrasting this uh, with Gregory and Enzin, the great Cappadocian in the 4th century, who spoke of my Trinity, saying, When I say God, I mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This practical modalism goes in tandem with a general lack of understanding of the historic doctrine of the Trinity. Augustine said this about the Trinity in his De Trinite. uh, He writes this, And no other subject is error more dangerous, or inquiry more laborious, or the discovery of truth more profitable. It cannot be recommended to anyone afraid of heights. So why should you believe that Jesus is not just a man? Or that he is God the Father who manifest in the man, Jesus. Was Jesus simply an anointed man with a special mission, empowered by the Spirit of God? Or is Jesus alive today in the flesh as the second person of the Godhead from eternity past? That's what we're going to talk about today. So for simplicity's sake, I, I want to look at uh, make my argument for the nature of the ontological makeup of God. There's only one divine nature. All divine activity is that the three persons who are this one nature, the three persons act as one principle. And uh, Fulgentius, in his uh, book Against Fastidious, in in chapter 2, pages 5 and 6, points 5 and 6, he says, The Holy Trinity operates inseparably, nor is there a work that the Father does. I'm getting a lot of feedback here for some reason. Um, Nor is there a work that the Father does and the Son does not or that the Son does and the Father does and the Holy Ghost does not. All right, so let's look at a positive presentation for my position here. I've given a little bit of a backstory, about four minutes to uh, the Trinity, uh, in contrast to what what Ken actually believes as a Unitarian. So I think that we can all agree that the Father is God. All right, so what I'm going to do is spend my time focusing on Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and I'll make an appeal for their divine nature and relation to the Father ending in an established equivocation that the Son and the Holy Spirit are respectively the second and third persons within the Trinity. Now I think it's important in a debate like this to define our terms. In fact, I heard it in Ken's opening statement that he doesn't believe in three gods, um, that any one person has to be one being uh, and that you can't have one being who is made up of three persons. So when, when I say a person, I'm not speaking of a being. Alright, now what we're talking about when we say a person is we believe that a person is someone who has, uh, is self-aware, they have a will, they have a mind, they have some sort of awareness of their self-existence, um, and, and they've got attributes and qualities of a person. All right, so when we speak of the being of God, we're describing the, the overall makeup of who God is. And the overall makeup of who God is is described in this being as being made up of three persons. So these three persons is going to be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All right, that's the easiest way to break that down. All right, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about the nuanced differences as we go here. All right, so how can Jesus Christ be the Son of God? Now, in English, we've only got one word for this for a son. When we say "son of God," that's that's one word. It's "son," meaning a boy derived from his parents through sexual relations. In the New Testament, in Greek, there are actually two words for a son. All right, the first being "technon," which means a a, a boy derived from his parents by sexual relations. Now, one thing to, to keep in mind that's extremely important when describing the relationship, of the nature of the Son of God, you've got to understand that that Greek word technon is never once used in the New Testament to describe Jesus as the Son of God. Because we all agree, Unitarians, Muslims, Christians, the Quran, and the Bible all agree God does not have sex. He does not have a wife, a girlfriend, or babies, and I, I think Ken would agree with that. Okay, so the second Greek word that describes um, the son in English would be huios. It, it means the same nature as. And you can see this in Luke ten six, where it describes a son of peace. It means that you have the nature of peace. You see in Ephesians 5, 6, sons of disobedience. Now, we don't, we don't believe that there are literal... Uh, physical sons of a physical person di- disobedience. This is a description of the nature of these sons of disobedience. When we describe Jesus as the son of God. That means that he is 100% the same nature as God. Jesus is also called in the New Testament, the only begotten. Another important term to get down in a debate like this. The, that Greek word describing only begotten, is monogonase. It's derived of two, two words put together conjoined with mono and genes. This would be mono being one in English and genes being genetics in English. So that would determine the detail of the monogenes wios, the one and only or the one unique son uh, or the only begotten son. And so Jesus as the only begotten son of God means that he has the same genetics and the same nature as God and yet not the offspring of God. He's literally God with the nature of God who came into a human body. That's exactly what the Bible teaches about the Son. Okay, now let's look at some Bible verses. In 1 John 5, 7, and 8, they illustrate the ten- Trinitarian belief of, of one God and three persons. Uh, and I'm going to read it. It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear, record, bear witness in earth, uh, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. Verse nine, if we if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his son. Now tell me, how can you explain this verse as a Unitarian? The, I, I would tell you the best explanation that you've got was was illustrated in in Ken's opening. All we've got is English versions of the Greek that would be good representations of of what once were uh, the original. Um, The originals and we don't have the originals all uh, what we have to go off of is our English versions so he would have to cast doubt that verse 7b Specifically describing the heavenly witness of the Father the Word and the Holy Ghost and these three are one um, as uh, as uh, non-canonical and and that's something that this this debate should not diverge into I take this as the Word of God. I'd be more than happy to debate this uh, in another debate, which I've done many times in the past. Um, But what we've got here is that if you do take that position, you really seriously are missing a huge um, aspect of the grammatical structure there. So what you've got in verse 7, you've got the heavenly witnesses. In verse 8, you've got the earthly witnesses. And verse 9 is a recap of both verses 7 and 8, showing the confirmation of verse 7 grammatically. If you take out that phrase in verse 7 of the Father, uh, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three agree in one, um, what you have is a neuter agreeing with a masculine, masculine article. And grammatically in the Greek, you cannot have that. Uh, so this is something that you just, if you're going to argue that it's uh, not canonical, you've got to explain how verse 9 grammatically would make sense with a neuter lining up to a, mas- uh, a masculine form there when grammatically it just doesn't work. Okay, so let's look at a, a few proofs of the Trinity. Ken says that it's not biblical. He says, well, well um, only God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Let's look at that point first. Um, in fact, I only heard um, three main points in his argument, which I'll look at in my rebuttal as well a little closer. But what we see in actuality is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all raised Christ Jesus from the dead. You see this in Romans 6, 4. Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. In John two nineteen through 21, Jesus is speaking, and he says, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.' He spake of the temple of his body." First Peter 3:18 says, "Christ being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit." Now we see that all three of these would make up the one being Jehovah God. These three persons make the one Jehovah God. Now the end of the God of peace. Uh, now the now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Hebrews 13:20 gives a summary statement of the three persons working together in conjunction for Jesus to rise from the dead. Now you see uh, another point is is um, the creation. You see that each actually had an operation and a role within the creation of the world. You see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 8:6. One God, the Father, of whom are all things. John 1:3 says, "For Jehovah, your God, is God of gods. All things were made by Him." Okay, we agree that's still speaking of of the Father, but then you see it in Deuteronomy 10:17. It says and Lord of lords for Jehovah your God is God of gods and Lord of lords all things were made by him and you can see the relationship of the Jehovah God here in Deuteronomy 10:17 and 1 Corinthians 8:6 and what's uh, conf- what's confirmed that this is also speaking of Jesus Christ where it says one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things Alright, so you've got the Holy Spirit involved in the creative acts as well in Job 33, 4, where it says, The Spirit of God hath made me. In Genesis 1, 1, you see in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In Genesis 1, 26, you see a little bit further where God says, Let us make man in our image. And uh, the creative events taking place there. Hebrews 1 describes Jesus creating the worlds and being present when the earth was created. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that as we go. But You've got another characteristic here that's going to cause a real problem for Ken, and that's that each person here saves man. And I plan on pressing him a little bit more about this particular point in our cross-examination. And I I really do hope to get a good answer out of Ken when it talks about the salvation of man. All right, so in 1 Peter one three, we see that God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ hath begotten us again. Okay, 1 Peter one three. But then you see regarding Jesus Christ in John 3.17, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law in Galatians 3.13, and the world through him might be saved in John 3.17. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But then you see it about the Holy Spirit, so it gets a little bit more complicated for Ken and his position that God is a unipersonal being who's not made up of three persons. What you see is these three persons are doing the saving, they're doing the creating, they're doing the resurrection of Christ, um, and they're all, they all have the same nature and qualities and characteristics of what we would call uh, God or Jehovah of the Old Testament. Okay, in Titus 3.5, he says, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. In 1 John 3.9, we see whoever is born of God. This is describing a birth of God. And each one of these three persons are all um, qualified with the characteristic of bringing uh, salvation to man. All right, now you see each is called God. You see God is our father in 1 Timothy 1.2. Isaiah 9.6 says a son is given. His name shall be called the mighty God. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Jehovah is the Spirit. We see that they're each eternal as well. 1 John 1.2, eternal life which was with the Father. Micah 5.2 says, whose goings forth have been from uh, of old from everlasting, describing uh, Jesus Christ, and we'll press that more as we get into it. Hebrews 9.14 says, through the eternal Spirit. And then Deuteronomy 33, 27 says, The eternal God is thy refuge. All right, and, and then you get into, obviously, something um, that needs to be borne out in this conversation that I'm sure Ken will bring up, is the, the, na- the nature of a will for each one. You see, the will of the Father which hath sent me in John 5, 30. You see in John 5, 21, the Son quickeneth whom he will. And then you see in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, the selfsame spirit dividing to every man severally as he Will, but then you see the the conjoining of these three persons to make up the one being of the Jehovah God uh, in Hebrews two nine, where it says, "I come to do Thy will, O God." Okay, now let's let's move on from some proofs of the Trinity and talk a little bit about the the appearances of Jehovah in the Old Testament as the Son of God. Uh, John six forty six. Um, we'll spend a little bit more time on this, but. And i may come back to it but you see jesus christ as the the son the word in the garden of eden in genesis 3 8. they heard the voice of the lord god walking in the garden you see him at the tower of babel the lord came down to see the city and the tower you see him with abram the lord appeared unto abram and said unto thy seed i will give this land he makes a covenant with abram that he's the angel of jehovah when he speaks to hagar um, he announces the conception of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 17:1, And we'll look at these a little bit further as we go into it. Um, but here's something to consider. Um, as and, and I think I talked about the ontological differences between one person and one being and three persons making up one being. Um, and and, and I, I think that that's something good to focus on. Um, but look at this. Here's a summary statement, and, and I may get to the point that I'll wrap up and turn it back to Ken for his cross-examination, but we'll work through it um, as go. What I would say when we're speaking of um, the nature of God and we're speaking of the deity of Christ and uh, the three persons of God making up the being of God as one being, it absolutely 100% is a salvation issue. Every time you see somebody being born again and regenerated Um, in the New Testament, what they do is they confess the Lord Jesus. You see this uh, with Philip, you see it with the Ethiopian eunuch, you see it with uh, Paul, you see in all of these different cases when somebody is saved that they confess Jesus as Lord. Um, And and when you confess Jesus as Lord, it's the the understood nature that Jesus as Lord is as the Son of God, God in the flesh. Not as a man who's uh, been anointed by God with a special power from the Holy Spirit and a special calling and mission, but literally 100% man and 100% God in the flesh. All right, so scripture is crystal clear. We see that Jesus receives worship. You see um, in, in Matthew 28, when he talks about baptizing in the name, uh, name singular, then they, they're told to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That name has three persons to it. You've got a singular that's described and conjoined by three. That's a plural. So one singular defined by a plurality. That's God. The plurality of God as one being is described in those three persons. In Matthew 3 verses 1 through 3, you see Jesus Christ is fulfilling Isaiah 40 verse 3 where it says to prepare the way of Jehovah and our God. You see in John 1, 1, the word was God, not a God. Isaiah 44, 8 says... Is there a God beside me? But you see, the absence of that article in Theos uh, describing God identifies the word as the subject. The subject is identified by that article, Hologos, and the predicate Theos without it. John did not use the word God like or a lesser God, which would be Theos to describe Jesus, but used Theos, God, the very God. All right? And we've already talked about some of the creation. Um, attributes of Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Father and creative acts. Uh, so, with the last minute that I've got, um, let me see what the best way to kind of sum this up with is. Is um, <sighs> let's see where should I go? Um, yeah, I think this would be a good place to to look at that when we're talking about Christ being 100% God and 100% man um he's operating through both natures and the the two natures are are described in a a number of different ways but you can see these two natures in hebrews 1 and hebrews 2. you see that jesus accepted worship Um, we've got a number of different trinitarian verses that we can look at there's so many places to look at um, when it comes to this subject that the evidence is just overwhelming that god is a triune being made up of three persons and uh, with that guys I, I think this is a good place to start and move on to the cross-examination so ken let me get you back on the screen and Matt, i'll put Matt, real quick joshua yeah go ahead
2: in our cross-examinations is it going to be like um kenneth joel starting he's going to be cross-examining your opening statement now is he going to add his rebuttal onto that or is that strictly for the rebuttals yeah it can be very hard not to answer right. so we're just asking questions and having the other person answer is that correct
0: yeah I think uh, um, obviously you can do whatever you want with your time um, for me I, in my rebuttal I'm just going to address some of the substance of your opening statement and my questions are not going to be primarily focused on what you've presented so far I'm going to bring that up in our second cross-examination but you can do that however you want I really don't it doesn't matter to me. But we've got 10 minutes each, and uh, and you'll go first, so whenever you're ready.
1: Okay. <clears throat> a lot of what I refer to as, <clears throat> or not I, uh, theologians refer to as eisegesis. Um, eisegesis is an eisegetical construct is when you take a preconceived notion and you impute it in onto the text. Uh, what what we don't want to do, which Josh is, in, in, I think, inadvertently, I think he's um, being honest in what he's saying, but he's inadvertently engaging in eisegetical reasoning. What we want to do is exegete Scripture and just read what it says. Uh, for example, when you say, Jesus is full 100% God and 100% man, well, that's trying to prove the Trinity with the Trinity. You, you can't find uh, scripture that says, uh, okay, what we have here, ladies and gentlemen, is the hypostatic union. What we have here is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. At the same time, Jesus is both. Um, that comes later in the councils, and, and I'd rather stick to scripture.
0: So do you want me uh, to answer and- that? Do you want me to answer that point? Sure. Okay. Um, so you say that we cannot, we cannot draw from the scriptures the hypostatic union. We can't show the two natures of Christ as God and man, 100% God, 100% man. And I, I think this is a really important point. I won't take too much of your cross-examination time, but you can see this in uh, Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 2. In Hebrews 1, he's describing the nature of Christ where he says, uh, in verse three, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had uh, when he had by himself purged our sin, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, for to the angel uh, for to which of the angels he said at any time, you are my son. This day have I begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So you see the nature of Christ in chapter one. Being so much better than the, the angels, but in, in chapter 2, he describes uh, the nature of the angels um, being above man, being better than man. Um, and it says, For it was the word spoken, um, where is it? Let's see. Uh, for to the angels he has not uh, put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. Um, for verily, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of, of, the seed of Abram. So he's describing the the nature of angels being above man in chapter 2, and he's describing the nature of Christ as being above angels. So you see, if he was 100% man, how can, he cannot be above angels when angels are above man, but you do see angels above man in chapter 2. So I think it is drawn from the text, and uh, that'd probably be the way that, the, that I can answer that in a short period of time, but I'll turn that back to you for your next question.
1: Uh, well the very the very fact that Jesus is in the nature of God shows that he's not God. <clears throat> the term nature of wouldn't be used. If Jesus is God, he wouldn't be in the nature of God. Paul wouldn't use uh, wording like this, or the writing of Hebrews wouldn't use wording like this. Um, an example of nature is morphe in the Greek. And the meaning of morphe means... Uh, It's a image or a reflection of something or someone else other than you like He did not take on the nature or the image of angels. Would that mean that Jesus didn't become an angel it or, Or Jesus took on the form or nature or morphe of a servant. Jesus was a free man He was not literally a servant Jesus was made in the image of God that shows that he's not God that doesn't say that he is God It says the exact opposite um, do you want you me to mentioned... answer that? Do you want me to?
0: Do you want me to answer that? Right? I mean, because normally you would ask questions. I'm I'm not trying to be rude. Um, but do you want this? Do you want to ask me questions or?
1: No, that's a rebuttal of what you just said. Okay, nature doesn't mean you are that thing. Um, I mean, Adam. Adam was made in the image of God. That doesn't mean Adam was God. Okay, so Jesus is made in the image of God. If Jesus is God, you wouldn't say. If Jesus is God, you wouldn't say image of God.
0: So when we're talking about the morphē, you're you're describing something that is changed from something into something else. You're you're not describing. You're you're de- when you when you compare morphē and huios, you're describing literally God becoming a man. You're not you're de- you're not describing something that's created brand new. You're describing something brought from one place to another, um, and that that'd be the best response that I can give. Kind of a in in a short time but yeah if you wanted to move on to the next point we could do that or we could keep going on that too
1: no that's not what morphe means morphe doesn't not mean uh a metamorphosis into something different i just defined morphe morphe means the reflection or the image of something else so no it doesn't mean changing into something else No. I'm seeing Isaiah 9 on my screen. Do you
2: have any more questions,
1: Mr. Um I, I think we should, in terms of a, a rebuttal, I think uh, Josh brought up a lot of verses, and I think we should spend some time on some of those specific verses, if if you guys agree. Like Isaiah 9-6, uh, John 1-1 comes up a lot. Uh, I think we should spend some time uh, on, on those verses, like maybe start with John 1-1. If you guys agree
0: well I mean it's your cross-examination time I um, I mean you can use it however you want I would normally you would ask questions I don't know
1: okay well in terms of cross-examination in three minutes and 40 seconds left you brought up first Corinthians 8 6 in cross-examination I brought up first Corinthians 8 6 it doesn't point to the deity of Christ it doesn't point to the Trinity. First Corinthians eight six says that there is but one God, the Father. It, First Corinthians eight six makes my point. Um, and you said that I'm not allowed to cross examine on First John five seven. That <clears throat> we, we shouldn't go there. Darn it, I'm going to lose my voice. Uh, so that doesn't that doesn't jive. I mean, <clears throat> how how would you not want to discuss that verse?
0: Um, I would like to discuss it. I'll read it. It says, uh, "It says, one God, the Father of whom are all things; one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things." So, yeah, I think that does that does support the Trinity. I think <clears> it's one of the greatest supports for the Trinity when it's describing the creation of the world. I mean, and if you compare that to Deuteronomy ten seventeen, where it says, "For Jehovah your God is God of gods and Lord of lords," and it's literally describing in the second half of 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where it calls Jesus Christ, Lord, um, by whom are all things. And it says in John 1, 3, all things were made by him. You've got a description of two distinct persons being involved in the creation, but not. don't forget the Holy Spirit being involved as well in Job 33, 4.
1: All right, well, um, and you mentioned 1 John 5, 7? yes. Um, Trinitarians, Trinitarian scholars agree that that, that phrase didn't appear in the early Greek manuscripts. That's, that's the, the phrase actually, the phrase in the King James actually hurts the Trinity. doesn't help the Trinity. Josh, I'm going to lose my voice. I'm sorry. I <clears throat> I don't know why I'm losing my voice.
0: Oh, you're good, man. I mean, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> can you,
1: if you hear me okay?
0: Yeah, I can hear you fine. <laughs> I can tell that, I mean, your voice is kind of breaking a little bit. Um, if you wanted to take a second and get a drink or if, I mean, it's up to you.
1: Yeah, I, I have tea
0: here, but um, and and I'm not <clears> trying to be a jerk. I really don't want to be a jerk. Um, I think that when we talk about First John five seven, um, and, and that phrase and these three are one, describing the relationship of the Father, um, the Word and the Holy Spirit. If you don't have that verse, um, you've really you've got a grammatical structure that you would have to provide an answer to. Where verse nine has got. Um, uh, a masculine referring back to a neuter, or a neuter referring back to a masculine. And grammatically, I think that if you're going to say it doesn't, it's, it shouldn't be in there. It's not in there. Then you would have a problem grammatically. But if you look at the, um, if you look at the external evidence, this verse is quoted in every single century by, uh, by a massive amount of early church fathers, starting with Tertullian and Cyprian. Um, you can see it. This was the foundational verse used at the Council of Carthage. Um, when they were describing the nature of the Trinity. This was the verse they went to. Um, this is what they used. You can see it. There's. It's in the Old Latin from 137 AD. It's in the Old Syriac, which predates that. It's in over 20,000 translations, early translations. And uh, I think that it's got a pretty good pedigree as being canonical, whether the
1: scholars agree or not. Why is it uh, only predominantly in the King James and in a number of other English translations
0: it doesn't appear besides so uh, that and I know we're out of time I'll give a real brief answer on that I'm not too worried about um, being super strict on on the time but um, what I would say is the difference uh, between the King James and a number of other different versions it's not just in the King James it's in it's in the new King James it's in the modern English version it's in the KJVER it's in um, It's in, uh, it is in a number of different versions, but the reason why is, um, is because ultimately it was included in the Textus Receptus in the third edition from Erasmus, uh, because there was manuscript support for it. And even Elijah Hickson recently did a post showing there are 10 Greek manuscripts that are extant today, that it is in there. And, um, um... When you look at the, the pedigree for those manuscripts showing whether or not it's canonical, I think that's where the the nature of the discussion needs to be, and there's still a pretty good discussion about it, but I think it does describe, um, really, at the end of the day, the methodology for what we determine is and is not canon um, for the different Bibles that we we've got today based making up the different greek texts for the english translations that we've got and and how they determine what should and shouldn't be in there so that's why it would be in the king james and a a number of other different translations because they come from the tr but anyways um so now i've got 10 minutes to ask you questions and let me get to my questions and um and then we'll we'll go from there so all right, so the first question that I've got for you is this, and then I want to get a little bit more specific. This is a kind of a broad question, but it, it, it's, it's this. Is, is it possible for the Father to annihilate the Son and the Spirit? Presumably, um, you've got two options to choose from here, and we'll see if we can move on from that. But I think this is an interesting question to answer, and I'd love to get your take on it. If Jesus was just a man and the Holy Spirit is just a force that comes from God, Um, Is it possible for either one of those to be annihilated by the Father?
1: Um, No, it's not possible to annihilate God. Uh, The Holy Spirit refers to God.
0: Okay, so what about Jesus? Can he be annihilated? Well, Jesus died,
1: and Jesus was dead for three days and three nights, and then God resurrected Jesus from the dead.
0: So it would seem that you're drawing a connection that when somebody dies, that would be the definition of annihilation. I think that what we're speaking of is uh, um, what happens to somebody. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe not annihilate. Maybe annihilate's not the right word. So let's say annihilate's not the right word. Could God send the sun to hell?
1: Well. Jesus went to hell uh, Jesus went to Sheol in the Hebrew or Hades in the Greek and he it, the, the the term hell a very unfortunate translation <clears throat> why the word hell was used is, is very odd but <clears throat> and we can get into that if you want but uh, the term hell means the state of being dead awaiting resurrection uh, and God <clears throat> goodness gracious Something's blooming. Sorry, I'm losing my voice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it's all good. And God and God did not leave Jesus's soul in Hades. Uh, Acts two thirty one, I believe. Yeah. Um, so I so think enge- my, my- so Jesus did go to hell. It, to answer your question, Jesus died and went to hell. Right.
0: I'm and uh, I'm not asking if he went to hell. I'm asking if he could remain there forever. And and obviously you would. You're making an, an argument that there's there's a resurrection. Okay. So when he's resurrected and uh, they end up, the, those who are lost without Christ, end up in the lake of fire. Do you think that Jesus could be sent to the lake of fire to burn eternally or to be annihilated, depending on your, your view of hell there?
1: It's a, it's a strange hypothetical that I'm going to pass on. Jesus was not a sinner. He's the, he's the very unique, he's the only human to walk the earth that, that didn't sin.
0: <clears throat> yeah, the reason I'm pressing you on that is because if Jesus could not, it, not even hypothetically, I'm asking if, if he's 100% man, God can do that to any man, but if he couldn't do it to Jesus, then there must, must be something about the nature of Jesus that is so unique mm-hmm. that God the Father could not send him to burn eternally. And, and I'll move on to the next question, but um, let me ask you this, um, and it may be worded a little strange, but do you believe that there was ever a time when the Son was not?
1: Yes, Jesus did not pre-exist his birth, Literally. Uh, Jesus is in the uh, mind of God all from the very beginning, from the very beginning of, of creation, <clears throat> and all through the Old Testament, he has prophesied. Um, so he is, he he has glory, and he has prophesied, and he has discussed the entire Bible is about Jesus. But he doesn't literally come into existence until uh, his birth. Uh, there is no biblical reason that to believe that he literally preexisted his birth. He okay. comes from the line. He comes from the line of David. Um, he, he is a a human. He is called the the last Adam. He is uh, a member. he's the spotless member of the human flock. Uh, God can't die for us. Um, uh, o- only an anointed king, which is prophesied, uh, is who died for us.
0: Um, okay, so let me let me um, ask you this: question Are you aware that this is the position that Arius took, where he was declared a heretic for saying that the Son? Um, there was a time when the sun was not.
1: I don't care what Arius uh, taught. A- Arius taught nonsense. Uh, Jesus didn't pre-exist his birth. Uh, Jesus was not a junior partner back in Genesis, uh, um, kind of a lesser God um, that, that was hanging out with God as a spirit being back in Genesis. So I don't care what Arius taught. I care what the Bible teaches.
0: Okay, so, uh, let's, let's go to another question. Romans 9, 5. Says, whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, Amen. My question is, um, who is this referring to um, when it talks about concerning the flesh came Christ, who is over all, God blessed forever? Who is who is that talking about?
1: Who 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 came in the flesh is not God. Uh, who came in the flesh is Jesus Christ. So who is who is, who is overall God-blessed
0: forever? Who is that?
1: Jesus is Father. The head of us is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. That's First 1 Corinthians 11.3, which is very consistent with the question you're asking. Um, there, there is no other hierarchy other than uh, there, there are human beings... Uh, there are there are uh, men and women, and the head of us is Christ. The head overall, head of everybody, is God. The head of us is Christ. The head of Christ is God. Uh, so what? I, what I'm asking for, further disproving the Trinity. By and, the
0: way. and I understand I understand how you've got the hierarchy there within Unitarianism, but I'm asking specifically in this verse, who is it referring to when you've got a comma here that says who are the whose are the fathers? And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came. So you've got the person here. Christ came, all right. Who is the Christ there?
1: Well, I don't have a uh, hierarchy within Unitarianism. I have a hierarchy in the verse I just quoted, right. which is First Corinthians eleven three. And to answer your question right. in terms of the comma, uh, it is commonly known. That there are there's no punctuation in either Greek or Hebrew. It's just letters strung together. There's an added comma doesn't give you meaning.
0: Okay, so I, that's what I'm asking though. Before placing the commas, full stops, question marks, we, we understand all of those were inserted by the translators. But what I'm asking you is is as it relates to the the, the grammatical structure of this sentence where it says Concerning the flesh, Christ came, and He's overall God blessed forever. Where do you see um, any distinction between Christ and the Father in that sentence?
1: Uh, but by uh, exegeting Scripture, by by reading all of Scripture, and by and by not <clears throat> taking one verse out of context, the one God is, who Scripture says is the one God all through Scripture, the one God who is overall is his father. It's our heavenly father. Uh, Jesus is the Christ. God is not the Christ. God did not anoint himself. It, the verse is about God and Jesus Christ. God, his father, Jesus came to make his father known, um, and we should know God, and we know God through Jesus Christ, and that's who Christ came to make known, his father, yeah. who is overall.
0: Okay, I've God got bless. I've got 2 minutes left. I want to end on this last question. Can you um, can you turn to Isaiah 48? Sure. And we'll go to Isaiah 48 verses 12 through 14. And and I'm going to read it while you're turning there. It says, uh, Hearken to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am uh, I also in the last. My hand also has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has spanned the heavens." When I call to them, they stand up together. All you assemble yourselves and hear which among them has declared these things. The Lord has loved him. He will do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be on the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken, yea, I've called him, I've brought him, and he shall make his way prosperous. Okay, so my question is, um, can you define for me who is the first and the last?
1: The, the God of Israel. That okay. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is referring to uh, the prophet. Are you suggesting that the prophet Isaiah believed in the Trinity?
0: I, I'm, I'll answer your questions when it's your time. I've got one minute left. So I, I would ask who is the first and the last you're saying it is who?
1: In this in the in the Old Testament, uh, the first and the last refers to God. Uh, there are there. Jesus is also called uh, the first and the last. Yeah, uh, for, uh, Alpha and Omega.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, these these are figure, Woo, this that's figurative. Good. That's good. That's good. That's good right there. <laughs> that's good right there. It's figurative language that uh, grade school children can understand. It's not literal. Um, got, neither God nor Jesus Christ are the first and the last Greek letter of uh, the Greek alphabet. Uh, Jesus is the beginning and the end of our faith. Uh, first and last. It's the same figure of speech we use today. That's the long and the short of it. All right. Oh, are you calling me God? Can you tell me?
0: Okay. I've, well, I've got. I'm out of time, so that's good. I'm gonna. I'm gonna press that a little
2: bit more. You want an extra minute, Josh? Oh, so, I do. You want to give him an extra minute? Sure. Oh, I did. My bad. Yeah. In the previous section, yeah, we went a little bit over. So if you want to give him another one,
1: if you want to keep asking, this is fine. This form is okay. fine. If you want to just keep asking questions, that's fine. I'm happy I, to answer.
0: Well, let me finish. I'll just finish this uh, this line of question right here, and then we'll move on, and you can um, you can do the next section there. So, my my question would be um, the next portion. You said that the first and the last. Um, is Jehovah. It's God. And then you identified Christ as being the first and the last. He, he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega as well. Um, my next question in this, this passage is, who laid the foundation of the earth? Who was that that laid the foundation of the earth?
1: Uh, God laid the foundation of the earth. Um, Jesus didn't exist in, in Genesis. Uh, Jesus is uh, the 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 line of Judah, he comes from the the line of David. Uh, God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Jesus is the creator of the new creation. What Paul is talking about uh, in the in the new covenant is what Jesus is the creator of. We are new, a new creation in Christ. So verses that talk about laying the foundation, uh, the, the the game plan from God all along, the foundation is Jesus Christ, his promised Messiah, what the entire Bible is about.
0: Okay, let's. Uh, okay, so who is the right hand of verse 13? Verse 13 says, My hand also has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has spanned the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up. Who's the right hand there?
1: It's prophetic of Jesus Christ, as most of the Old Testament is.
0: So it's you're saying that it's prophetic of Jesus Christ as being present in the creation, not him actually being present in the creation. Of course. So who actually? Old it says. It says, "My right hand has spanned the heavens. My hand has also laid the foundation of the earth." And you're saying that is Jesus Christ, but it's not literally Jesus Christ. Is that right?
1: It, no, I'm saying it's God, and it's also prophetic of Jesus Christ, what He is going to accomplish when He comes. It's it's very it's very figurative language, by the way. God doesn't have a literal hand.
0: Okay, so the last the last part of this um, this this question is in verse 16. I'd like to know who is the me where it says, "Come you near to me, hear you this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was. There am I, and now the Lord God and His Spirit has sent me. Who is the me there?
1: Sp- I think it's the prophet. I think it's the prophet. I have to read the the whole the context of the whole chapter, but I think it's the prophet.
0: So the prophet is the one who sp- did not speak to them in secret from the beginning as a reference to the beginning of creation. Is that the position you're taking?:
1: Yeah, who do you think it, who, you, who you think it is?
0: Well, I'd be more than happy I, I will I promise you, I'll make a strong point on who I think that's a reference to. Um, okay. So my, my question is the, the Lord God and His Spirit has sent me. That's kind of who I'm at. You're saying that's the prophet who, is, who uh, the Lord God and the Spirit sent that's you're saying that's the profit is that right
1: yeah i think so i haven't i haven't uh, looked at that in in years i I think i think it's i think so i'm I'm not sure i'll I'll,
0: okay that's that's all i've got and i think what we've got let me put it up on the screen for those of you guys watching here uh the next is 10 minute rebuttals so this will be 10 minutes for you to rebut me and then i will do my 10 minute rebuttal
1: all right um I already mentioned first John five, seven um, Genesis. You, you brought up Genesis one 26. I thought I found that uh, fascinating. Uh, apparently you're convinced that the Trinity is taught in the old Testament, like, like Moses believed in the Trinity and what he was trying to do was teach the Trinity doctrine in Genesis one by saying that, uh, by, by using the, uh, what a lot of people refer to as the royal we, or or the or a figure of speech known as plurality of majesty, where God is referring to himself as us. Us doesn't mean three. Uh, us doesn't mean uh, a, tri- a triune God. That doesn't mean that God is referring to himself as a trinity, or that Moses is trying to teach the trinity. Um, and evidence for that, if you look at uh, Ezra 418, the, the king uh, in Ezra 418, having received a letter uh, they didn't have email at the time. There was only one letter addressed to one guy, one king. The king in Ezra 4.18 refers to himself as us. The the letter that we received, that, that you sent to us. It is a plurality of majesty. He represents the kingdom, but he, but the, the king in Ezra isn't a, a, a triune being. Um, the, this figure of speech that is plurality of majesty is used throughout scripture. It's a very common figure of speech. Uh, And again, it's engaging in eisegetical constructs to say Genesis 1.26 is is a proof text. It was one of your short lists of proof texts for the Trinity. That's that's fascinating to me, to to refer to that as a a proof text for the Trinity. Uh, uh, You also mentioned that uh, Jesus is Uh, the son of God and and I mentioned and and you said that it means that it's the same nature of God that's not what son of God means son of God is never used to mean God ever in scripture son of God refers to a being that came from God the the angels are called sons of God Uh, Adam is referred to as son of God Jesus is referred to as the only begotten son of God uh, I think that 's specifically referring to his resurrection um, as a, he's he 's begotten he came in the flesh he 's begotten of the woman at his birth he's he, that 's what son of man means he he comes from the line of David son of man means he is a human he 's a very unique human um, common mistake from unitarians is that he 's just like us he 's just a regular man no he 's a very unique man uh, but anyway that 's what son of man means, and God is not. The Son of Man, Numbers 23 19, Jesus is the Son of Man. Um, Son of God shows that He's not God, and it's fascinating that Son of God is is twisted in the Trinitarian construct to say, God the Son. There, there is no biblical reason to twist the Son of God into God the Son. Uh, we should stick to um, exegeting Scripture. And just stick to what Scripture says, instead of coming up with these uh, different formulations to try to prove the Trinity, um, which which just isn't there in in Scripture. Um, you also mentioned Hebrews one eight, uh, that that doesn't not only does it not say that Jesus is God, uh, it doesn't prove the Trinity. Uh, Hebrews one eight is quoting Psalm forty five six, "Thy throne, O God," is referring to God, the Father. From, from the Psalms. And this is quoted, this is said unto the Son. The verse is about the throne. Thy, thy throne, O oh God, will will be forever and ever uh, because Jesus will sit on the throne. Uh, and, and Jesus will sit on that throne forever and ever because He is the resurrected King. He's the King of Kings. Uh, that's the reason for or Hebrews one eight quoting Psalm forty five six, it's not calling Jesus God, uh, and and besides if Jesus were God already there, he wouldn't be the promised Messiah. It's Jesus. If the Messiah was already there in the Old Testament, he wouldn't be the future or promised Messiah. Um, you brought up Isaiah nine six. The, you still have to engage in Isaiah Jesus to 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 say that. Are you saying that? Isaiah believed in the Trinity? Are you saying that Isaiah believed that the future Messiah is God himself? Isaiah 9-6 is about the current king. Read the context. Don't just read one verse. Read the context. Read the chapters before and the chapters after. Isaiah is talking about the current king at the time. It's also prophetic of the future king of kings, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9-6 is about King Hezekiah. And it's also prophetic of the future king of kings that will sit on the throne of David uh, uh, Isaiah 9 6 uh, says mighty God in in most translations and mighty God is a good translation for El Gibor uh, that is the literal translation of El God and Gibor mighty um, but men are called El Gibor as well uh, for example in uh, in Ezekiel chapters 31 and 32, uh, men or representatives of God are called El Gabor, the exact same words. Uh, are those representatives, are those, are those God too? Do we believe in a quadrate? Of course not. That, 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 uh, and, and, beside, and, and besides the fact that uh, that's, what, that's how El Gabor is used to describe men and other men in, in Scripture, it, it's also important to look at the very next verse isaiah 9 7 where the future messiah jesus christ will sit on king david's throne it would be blasphemy to suggest that almighty god himself will sit on the throne of king david god does not sit on the throne of a man the future king of kings jesus christ will sit on king david's throne isaiah 9 7 there is no way you can use Isaiah 9-6 as a proof text for the Trinity. Not only is there no triune God there, it doesn't even make Jesus into a God-man. It doesn't it doesn't say that Jesus is God. And and there's and and just Hebrew scholarship will, will not lend itself to the idea that Isaiah was trying to say that the future Mashiach is literally Almighty God Himself. That is not what the prophet Isaiah was trying to say, was teaching, um, and also on Isaiah nine six. There's there's translations like the the Moffat translation and the and the uh, I think uh, Martin Luther's I think Luther's uh, translation in in the, in German. Uh, they use the term mighty hero, uh, which is a good which is appropriate, which makes sense. They they translate it the same way that the the verses I mentioned in Ezekiel. Uh, El Gibor is, is translated, when you're talking about men, when you're talking about uh, anointed kings on the throne, like Hezekiah, you're not, you're not saying that they are literally Almighty God. And when you're talking about his future, God's future Messiah, who is promised, you, the prophet Isaiah is not calling him God or making him God. You um, also mentioned something very interesting. You said that Jesus resurrected himself from the dead and you quoted uh, the verse where Jesus said, in three days I will raise up my body. Uh, Jesus didn't say, I will resurrect myself from the dead. Uh, You added that. Uh, And and that has to be added to what Jesus said in order to try to teach the Trinitarian construct, to engage in eisegetical construct. Um, Jesus didn't say that. The Trinity teaches that the Father resurrected Jesus from the dead Jesus resurrected Jesus from the dead and the Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus from the dead well There is no verse that says that Jesus resurrected himself from the dead It's just a Trinitarian construct. It's trying to prove the Trinity with the Trinity. What Jesus said is in three days I will raise up my body and he did Jesus was physically resurrected the point of what Jesus is saying is that it is per uh the, the uh, Old Testament uh, prophetic nature of the, the future Messiah he was only going to be dead it's the sign of Jonah he is only going to be dead for three days and three nights, his body will not see corruption, the body begins to see corruption when it's dead for more than more than three days Jesus' body did not see corruption he was physically resurrected he doesn't have to wait until the end of days for the resurrection um and you even mentioned that in terms of the, the strange annihilation question. Uh, but Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead. And that's what Jesus was referring to. He physically raised up and walked out of the tomb. He didn't say he resurrected himself from the dead. God resurrected him from the dead. And he raised up his body and walked out of the tomb physically. My time's up, I think.
0: Awesome. Okay. Yeah, I should have ten minutes up for me and i'll go ahead and get started let me put my camera on okay all right so let me go through each of these points i'll do the best that i can to address them in the positive presentation i really didn't hear a whole lot of a positive presentation in his opening statement about what he actually believes So i felt like i had to state that for the audience to describe what he actually believes about the nature of jesus about the relationship of jesus to the father and uh, the personhood of the spirit which he doesn't believe the spirit is a person he believes he's a an impersonal force and the nature of the the spirit himself as a person is the father as the the one true god the spirit so um, i want to make that clear that is that's what ken believes that's what i'm rebutting he says that Jesus prays to God in John 17:3, and uh, um, I have no argument with that. I think that uh, for the the triune, the Trinity, the the the, um, the two natures of Christ, obviously, this isn't something that a Trinitarian has a problem with. Um, and he says that Jesus Christ is whom he would send. So, yeah, that's not, there's nothing that a Trinitarian has any problem with. This is one of three verses that he quoted in his opening statement. The second one was 1 Corinthians 8, 6, where he says there's one God. Again, Trinitarians are not arguing for uh, multi- multiple gods. We're arguing um, that the one true God, the Shema, the one the, the one God, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, is one God, um, that this one God is the three persons of this, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and I'm going to draw this out more. Um, he says that men are called God, like Moses and judges. And no, Moses was never called God. He said when God spoke to Moses. By the way, that was Jesus Christ speaking to him. He says that uh, he says that you will be as a God to uh, to Pharaoh. He doesn't say that you are God. You will be God to Pharaoh. He says you will be as God. This is a simile. It's a picture of what man would be to Pharaoh and and being uh, the agent for. Um, the actions that God is bringing against Pharaoh and and Egypt. So, he says, Jesus Christ can't be God because the meaning of Christ shows he is not God. Again, this is just like so many of the things that Ken has said throughout this debate. He, he just makes claims and, and doesn't do anything to support it. He just says stuff like this and gives absolutely no support for it. He's saying that Christ can't be God because the meaning of Christ shows he's not God. Okay, well, tell us, Ken, like where how does that mean that he can't be God because he's Christ? Like, you haven't given us a definition of Christ and how it, that means he can't be God. So we're still waiting for that. Um then he says well God raised Jesus from the dead and for me to say that Jesus raised Jesus from the dead and the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead is just reading trinitarian doctrine into trinitarian arguments and and yet he's completely ignoring um the words that came out of his own mouth where he quoted the verse and said that Jesus said in 3 days I will raise this temple up again in reference to his own body if he's saying that that's not Jesus who was going to raise himself from the dead, he's got to make a statement grammatically describing for us how that verse could mean anything other than what it says and what he himself said, that this is Jesus who would raise himself from the dead. Let me read it again. In Romans 6, 4, it says, Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Okay, so you see the Father there, no doubt. John 2:19 says, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He spake of the temple of his body.'" And then First Peter 3.18 says, Christ being put to death in the flesh was but quickened by the Spirit. And then you see all three of those working together as the one true Jehovah God, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus. And, and he made a reference to Genesis one twenty six with, saying that it's a proof text for the Trinity when uh, it's not. And yet, he again, he didn't make any positive claims for what Genesis one twenty six actually means to represent a Unitarian God, a unipersonal God. And and if you look at the grammatical structure, the Elohim there is describing God um, in a plurality. Elohim is plural. It's referenced to plurality as God saying, let us make man in our image. Okay, so you've got a plural form um, describing Uh, the singular form. So let us make man in our image. You've got a plural there. It cannot be be a reference to uh, the divine counsel. It can't be that because we know that man wasn't made in the image of the angels. We know that man wasn't made in the image of the seraphim, the teraphim, um, and and the other uh, archangels, the other heavenly beings. We know that it couldn't be that. Um, so when we speak of man being made in the image of God, we're speaking of man literally being made in the image of God. man um, is is a tripartite being just like God. Man has a is a soul, he's a spirit, and he, he has a body. Um, God is a is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. and and when we talk about the the nature and the image of man being made in the image of God, that's what we're talking about, the tripartite nature of God. But I want to get back to, Finally, those are those are all the points that he made in his, in his opening statement and then what he just made in his rebuttal. But I want to go back to this in Isaiah 48:12 through 14 where we're describing the first and the last, and we're describing the foundations being laid, and we're talking about who the right hand is who stretched out the heavens, and we see verse 16, uh, the me there is Jehovah God, but but what we've got to see here is that the reference to the right hand is Jesus Christ. He is literally called the hand of Jehovah. The hand of the Lord hath wrought this in Job twelve nine, Ezekiel 37, 1, Proverbs 27, 1, and Daniel 5, 5. Jesus is called the arm of Jehovah, Strong in power. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Isaiah 53, 1. Isaiah 53, that chapter is completely describing Jesus Christ um, at his crucifixion. It's describing Christ. And then you see it again in John 12:38. He's described as the feet of Jehovah at his return, where he says, His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives in Zechariah 14, 4. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed Uh, If you notice this, but when we talk about Jesus Christ at his ascension, he's described in Mm -hmm. Acts uh, chapter one as as uh, coming back in the same way that he went and went. Where did he leave when he left? He left at the Mount of Olives ascending up on a cloud as the cloud rider who throughout the Old Testament is a picture of the one true God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings, and that is Jesus Christ riding on the clouds in heaven, going back to heaven from where he came, where he claimed that he had the glory with God the Father in John 17, 5, and that he would have that glory returned to him when he returns to the Father in heaven. and But you've got the promise that he's going to come back there again. Um, And where did he leave? He left at the Mount of Olives in Acts 1. And he's going to come back based off of this prophecy in Zechariah 14.4, where it says, His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. This is the feet of Jehovah at his return, coming back on the Mount of Olives in Zechariah 14.4, tied directly to the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back at the second coming. Um, But not only that, you see Isaiah... Um, crying, woe is me, for I'm undone. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord Jehovah of hosts. In Isaiah six five, but then you see in John twelve forty one that John says this was God the Son, where he says these things said Isaiah when he saw his Christ glory and spake of him, Jesus Christ. It was God the Son who spoke to Hagar in Genesis sixteen. It was Jehovah that spake unto her in in thirteen, and Jehovah went before them in Exodus thirteen twenty one. It, he is said to be the angel of God that went before him in Exodus 14:19, and he led Israel in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You see that this is the same creator that we're speaking about in Colossians 2, the same creator that we were talking about in our cross-examination in Isaiah 48, 12, who is the arm of the Lord, who is the f- the finger of God, who is the hand of Jehovah, who is the feet of Jehovah, the face of Jehovah, and he's in the likeness of man on the throne in, in Ezekiel 1, 26. This is the God of Israel in Ezekiel ten twenty. This is the creator God that we worship. The- this is the word in John 1, 1 where it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. God And the word was God. He's a distinct person. He was the Theon and he was theos as the nature who became flesh, God who became flesh. John 1.18 describes him as the son, monogamous huios, and uh, ohon, always existing in the bosom of the father. John 6, 38, it's the person of Christ who exercised his own will distinct from the Father's will in his pre-incarnate existence, that is before coming to earth. And then John 8, 24, one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible, one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible, describing the nature of who the person of Jesus Christ is, the the God that we worship. When Philip said, my God and my Savior, uh, the same confession that I make with Jesus, my God and my Savior, where Jesus Christ claims to be the, the i am where he's talking to uh the pharisees and says except you believe that i am you will die in your sins and then in john 8 24 where he claimed the to be the pre-existent eternal god ego i me and he does it again in verse 56 and i'll wrap it up by quoting it uh john 8 um 26 and 56 he says i have many things to say and to judge you but he but he that sent uh, but he that sent me is true and I speak to the world of those things which I've heard of him 8:24 um, uh, I'm sorry I said therefore to you that you shall die in your sins for if you believe not that I am you shall die in your sins and then finally in verse 56 it says your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abram verily verily I say to you before Abraham was I am. That is a direct claim to being Jehovah God of the Old Testament. That's Jesus Christ, the God that I worship. And let me turn that back over to you, Ken. And then I think we've got cross-examination for... Uh, what is it? Um, seven minutes. Seven minutes.
2: Whenever you're ready, Kenneth Joel, I'll start the clock for.
1: I'm sorry, I had to mute on. Oh, you're good. I started. I started to say something really cool, and I had muted on. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. You're okay. good. Okay. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, you, you brought up John one one. I, I hope that we can spend like a whole segment on just John one one because that comes up a lot. That's kind of a biggie. Yeah, whatever. You if want. you guys agree, is that cool? Um, I, I think we should do kind of a give and take. We should probably spend a good. Fifteen or twenty minutes just on that one verse, if you guys agree. So I won't handle that yet, um, but let's let's talk about that some more. Uh, you mentioned uh, John eight twenty four. Unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. Okay. Well, who did Jesus just get through saying He was? In verse sixteen, He just got through telling us who He was. Ego imai doesn't mean God. Jesus just got through saying, unless you believe that I am he, the one that I just got through saying I am, then you shall die in your sins. Who is Jesus? Well, let's flip back a couple of verses. In verse 16, he just got through saying he's the one that was sent by God. He is the promised Messiah, he's the one that was sent by God. That's who he is. And that's, by the way, that's the doctrine of Christ that I mentioned in my intro. That's what I hold to is the doctrine of Christ, not the doctrine of the Trinity. I hold to the doctrine of Christ in 2 John 9. The doctrine of Christ is that Jesus is the anointed one. Uh, You sounded confused like you weren't sure what the word Christ means. I needed to make a point about the very meaning of the word Christ shows that he's not God. I'm sorry, I thought everybody knew what the word Christ means. Um, At least Christians should know what the word Christ means. It means the anointed one. God did not anoint himself, and I thought I made reference to that. But Jesus is the anointed one. God is not the anointed one. God did not anoint himself. God anointed Jesus. Uh, trying to say that John eight twenty four is a proof text for the Trinity is engaging in eisegesis. It's taking the Trinity and saying, my preacher told me that I am means God. My preacher told me that egoimi is a claim of being God. Ego Emiah is stated 71 times all throughout the Gospels and all throughout the New Testament by many different people. In the very next chapter, the blind man says, I am he, in John 9.9. 9. Hey, are you, man... you going to
0: ask me any questions? I'm not trying to be rude. I mean, you've been talking for three minutes and it's cross-examination.
1: No. Um, John 9.9 9 says, the blind man says, I am he. Ego emai does not mean God. Ego emai e, says, I'm the guy that's being discussed. I, I'm the guy. I'm the topic of conversation here. That's all it means in the Greek. Ego emai does not mean God. Um, and you mentioned uh, John 8.58, finally. Uh, so in rebuttal to that, uh, I, I would say that if, if you read the context of John 8.58, start in John 8.50. Don't just Read one or two verses. Jesus is before Abraham. John, what, what Jesus is explaining to the Jews, Jesus is explaining Judgment Day. He says in John 8.50, he refers to judgment. And John 8.51, if you believe, you will not die in your sins. The Pharisees said, what are you talking about? You will not die? The Pharisees bring up Abraham. Jesus didn't bring up Abraham. The Pharisees did in their either misunderstanding or disbelief or trying to catch him or try to catch him uh, with a problem. Jesus says in John 8 51, if you don't believe, you will die in your sins. And they're saying, what are you talking about? Abraham died? Are you saying that our father Abraham, the father of the Jews, that he he wasn't that he wasn't a believer? See the Pharisees didn't understand that Jesus is talking about the second death. He's talking about judgment day. And and, and Jesus then starts to answer their questions. They are trying to trick him. And, and if you're believing what the Pharisees were saying, that might be problematic for your doctrine. If you're holding to the, to the, what the Pharisees, who, who Jesus called of their father the devil, and liars and hypocrites, I prob- I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's probably not a good idea to look to the Pharisees for help with the, the doctrine. Jesus is talking about judgment. He's talking about judgment day. And he's talking about the fact that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. What day? The end of days, judgment, when when Abraham will be resurrected unto eternal life, resurrected and judged unto eternal life. And and they say are, and they ask Jesus the question, are you saying that you're greater than Abraham? He's answering their questions. Yeah. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm not only greater than Abraham, I'm being discussed in Scripture even before Abraham. From the beginning of time, God uh, is prophesying that he's going to send me. I'm the one that was sent by God. The entire, it's about me. That's why he quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? That's him quoting the Psalms, Psalm 22.1. Most preachers don't understand that at all. King David is—it's—it's it's prophesying Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was way before Abraham. Jesus Christ is prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, and the Pharisees didn't get it, and G- and they picked up stones to stone him. So anyway, that's my rebuttal. I hope I hope we can uh, again spend some time on John one one. Uh, I still have half a minute. Um, you said I need to give more explanation of what jesus meant by raising up his body i did jesus physically raised up his body and walked out of the tomb i did explain it so i did explain what christ means i did explain what jesus said jesus never said that i will resurrect myself from the dead jesus said i will raise up my body and he did he physically got up and raised up his body and rolled the stone was rolled away and he walked out of the tomb that's all he said and that occurred Anyway, uh, my time's about up. I ho- I ho- again, I hope we talk about John one one with some time. I yield.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So I've got seven minutes for cross examination. I, I do. I really do wish that you would have asked me some questions. I mean, it it, it would have been nice to use the cross examination for that purpose. Um, so I'm I am planning on using my time to actually ask you questions. So I, I'd like to go to Hosea five fifteen. If you would turn Isaiah f- or Hosea 5.15, and I'm going to read it. It says, uh, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face and their affliction, they will seek me early. Can you tell me who's speaking there?
1: I don't know. I haven't read the context. I'd have to read the context.
0: Okay, I'm so... Not gonna just,
1: I'm not going to just read one or two verses and... And I'm going to read the context.
0: All right. So we've got in in chapter four. It says, "Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there's no truth, nor mercy, nor, nor knowledge of God in the land." All right. So would you say that the Lord is speaking there?
1: I don't know. I haven't read the context.
0: Wait, you want? I'll read it again. It says, "Hear the word of the Lord." Would you say the Lord, the word of the Lord, is about to be spoken? Yeah. Okay. Now, in, in chapter 5, verse 15, this is all part of the same word being spoken. It doesn't break up until uh, verse 1 of chapter 6, where it says, Come and let us return to the Lord. He is torn, and he will heal us. He has smitten, and he will bind us. But in verse 15 specifically, he says, I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Who, Who is, what do you think, um, who would you say the offenders are there? The people? Spe- specifically, what people would that be?
1: Probably Israelites.
0: Okay, and what was their offense? Do you the, think
1: the, the the audience? Okay, um, I don't know. Again, I haven't read the context. You're just you're just reading one or two verses. I, I would, if you want to spend time with the context, uh, Israel, the Jews, fell into all kinds of unbelief, all kinds of pagan stuff. They, they, there was all kinds of uh, problems all throughout the Old Testament scriptures about the errors and and the uh, the false okay. um, so, witness and departing from God all throughout the Old Testament. Now, we don't have I, to get very— I don't know very, if that's the context or not, but that would be my guess.
0: Okay, and we don't have to get very deep into eschatology, but I, I think you would probably agree that Israel is going to um, believe on the Lord at some point. Would you agree with that statement as a people? No.
1: All of physical Israel is going to believe on the Lord? No, absolutely not. As a people. Not. I'm
0: not saying every individual. I'm saying as a people.
1: That doesn't make sense.
0: Okay. Well, let's, let's skip the eschatology part of it. Let's go back to the offense. Would you say that the crucifixion was a pretty offensive thing to Jesus? Do you think the crucifixion was an offense
1: against Jesus? Yes. And I would say he's all, he was also falsely accused, by the way. He was not correctly accused of anything. He I agree with that. Falsely accused. Uh, and and it's, it's amazing how many preachers don't even understand what he was falsely accused of. Yeah,
0: and they said um, when, when they crucified Christ, they said, uh, his blood be upon us, right?
1: Who, the, the, uh, the heads of, of the Israeli, he- Israeli heads?
0: Yeah, the nation the of Rom- Israel as a people said I those Ro- words. I think the
1: Romans said that too.
0: Okay, so, so you, you agreed that they, they, they had a major offense against Christ— that they said his blood be upon us. You say the Romans said that also. So that would be a very offensive thing. Um, I, would, I would ask this question. If this is a reference to the crucifixion, would you say that they've recognized that offense yet?
1: Who, Israel yes. or Rome? Israel. Uh, I, I would say a, a few Jews uh, repented and, and, and understood the offense. I'm I'm speaking say, as a
0: people, not individuals, yeah. I
1: would say as a people they have have not but they but they can. Do you think uh, they ever Paul, will? Paul talks Paul talks about this a lot. Uh, how great would it be if the people who had all had who had the scrolls and had the prophets and 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 who have departed and God wrote a bill of divorcement because they just they departed from God. How great would it be if they became uh believers? Uh they can. Uh and and in the in the new te- in the new covenant, Israel are are believers.
0: Okay, so I've spiritual I've got about two minutes left. Do you think Israel will ever um, recognize their offense against Jesus?
1: Again, I just answered that. It, there's a difference between physical Israel and spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel is believers. One hundred percent of spiritual Israel, yes, okay. are believers. Not good, physical. Good, good. Not physically Israel. No, I do not think that physical Israel as a people uh, will, will all come to believe because many will be judged and cast into the lake of fire. All
0: right. So let's look at uh, Zechariah 11:12, And for the last minute and a half, I've got this and I'll spend it on this. And I said to them, if you think good, give me my price and if not forbear. So they weighed for my price, 30 pieces of silver and the Lord said to me, cast it to the potter, a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the 30 pieces of silver and I cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. So my question is my price. Who is that referencing as the price? Who's that price? Who's that price for?
1: It's prophetic of Jesus Christ.
0: Okay. And you would say specifically in this verse, this is Jehovah. Is that right?
1: No, Jehovah can't
0: die. Who is speaking in Zechariah
1: 11:12? It's God speaking prophetically of his son Jesus Christ.
0: But he's speaking in the first person, would you agree? Yeah. Okay, so God is speaking as receiving a price of 30 pieces of silver. And you're saying that's yes. a reference to Jesus Christ prophetically. If he's speaking yes, then, in, in the in fact- If he's speaking in the first person, as God in Zechariah 11:12, as a reference to Jesus Christ, and he's speaking of himself. How can you say that is not a reference to Jesus Christ? It is betrayal as a reference back to Hosea 5:15, with Israel um, uh, being the offense against Christ for his crucifixion.
1: You asked me, how can I say it's not about Jesus Christ when I just got through saying it's about Jesus Christ? No, I said,
0: how can you say Jesus Christ is not the Jehovah when he's speaking as Jehovah in Zechariah eleven twelve as God, who's saying this price is against himself?
1: Because his father is God. It's, uh, there's many prophecies that are, that are written in the first person. For example, King David refers to crucifixion. King David wasn't crucified. Read Psalm 22. King David is speaking in the first person but it's prophetic of Jesus Christ. By your logic, King David is the Messiah. King David is Jesus Christ. Hmm. God is writing in the first person, as many of the prophets did also, all throughout the Old Testament. They write in the first person, but it's prophetic of Jesus Christ. Um. That's good. Okay,
0: so we've got seven minutes for closing statements. I'll turn that back to you and then we'll open it up to questions for the audience. Again, guys, uh, if you're watching live right now, we've got a a lot of comments that are coming in. And if you want to ask a question, you can uh, give us a chance at the end um, to call in. We can only take two calls at once. Um, so we'll, we've got 14 minutes for closing statements, seven for Ken, seven for me. I probably won't use my whole seven minutes, but we'll see. Uh, the, the, the number to call is 816-866-0025 if you would like to call and get a question answered. And you can always type it in as well, and I'll put it up on the screen for those of you who are watching. So um, let me reset this clock here, and then I'll turn it back to you, Ken. So whenever you're ready.
1: I don't, I don't know how you guys are doing on time, but um, how do you guys feel about my request to discuss john 1-1 for for a a few minutes kind of back and forth and then do our closing statements what do you think about that
0: i would just say from my perspective for time's sake um i i if you wanted to make an argument like that you probably i i'm not trying to be a jerk i would love to have talked about it in the debate but i'd like to give the audience a chance to ask some questions um just because we're at an hour and 45 minutes right now and if if at the end when we get done with the, the audience questions i don't have a problem with it
1: Okay. All right. Darn it. Um, I thought you'd like my suggestion. John one is kind of huge. I do. I, I would love to talk
0: about it. I, I, I would have loved to talk about it in, in the actual debate, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, me too. That's what I'm wanting to do right now. Anyway, um, I'll just say in, in, in conclusion, um, scripture. I, I brought up uh, John 17.3. Jesus is praying to God. Um, and, and, And you said that Trinitarians have no problem with the verse. Well, I would hope they would have no problem with the verse. Jesus says, and this is life eternal. This is important for eternal life. Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father. And he says, and this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God. He didn't say that they might know us. And the Holy Spirit, the three of us, are the only true God. He said that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is important for eternal life. This is very this is a big deal, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> who, who is the you that Jesus is praying to, and who is Jesus Christ, whom he has sent? These are the two distinct beings that we find in Scripture over and over and over, hundreds and hundreds of the entire Bible is about these two distinct beings. And what we heard a lot uh, from the Trinitarian perspective is eisegetical constructs, taking the Trinity and saying, well, this is my understanding of John 8, 24. Uh, I am means God, when no, it doesn't. Um, the us in Genesis one twenty six is Moses trying to teach the Trinity. No, it's not. It's it's a lot of eisegetical uh, reading into verses, starting with the Trinity. So then if we start with the Trinity in John 17, 3, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and he's having a inter-Trinitarian conversation with the first person of the Trinity, the Father. That is a construct from the Trinitarian perspective. Or, we can do as Unitarians do and exegete the scripture and just read what it says. Just stick to what it says. Don't add things like Jesus resurrected himself from the dead. Jesus, Jesus didn't even say from the dead. He said, I will raise up my body. I will raise up the temple. I will raise up my body. Number one, it's, he's talking about his physical body. He's also referring to the body of Christ, the, the church, raising up the church. But that's an, another big Big, uh, big topic. Um, let's not engage in eisegesis. Jesus. Let's not engage in starting with our construct and seeing and you know, see if we can pour it into verse. Um, what a son of God means. Son of God. Son has meaning. The word has meaning. God is not using some new uh, uh, magical spiritual wording. He's using words that we understand. The son is lesser. The father is greater. Jesus even says that his father is greater. No verse says that Jesus is equal with God. The Pharisees pretend that Jesus said it. Jesus didn't say that. In John 10:33, the Pharisees misquoted what Jesus said in John 10:30, And they said, You're, you being a man, claim to be equal with God. No, he didn't. He didn't claim to be equal with God. Stick to what Jesus said. Don't believe the Pharisees, and don't believe the guy up on stage behind a podium that's that's teaching you concepts. Uh, that's why I brought up evolution in my intro. Stick to what Scripture says. Son means son. We all know what the word means. Begotten means we, begotten. It means came from. And Trinitarians make up this idea of Jesus was eternally begotten. That doesn't make any sense. Jesus was not eternally begotten. Well, he has to be eternally begotten because he's always existed. No, he was begotten two thousand years ago. Stick to Scripture. Exegete Scripture. Um, Jesus was anointed by God. Jesus is our High Priest. Uh, Jesus is the mediator between us and God. First Timothy two five. It's if Jesus is the mediator between me and God, Jesus has to be a third party, a separate third party, for the word mediation to even have meaning. I can't be the mediator between me and God. God can't be the mediator between me and God. A third party, Jesus Christ, is the mediator between me and God. God is our Heavenly Father. Jesus Christ is our brother. Jesus said, I'm not ashamed to call them brethren. Um, Paul says in Romans uh, that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. God isn't our brother; that's blasphemous to even think about. God is our Father. Jesus Christ is our brother. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Christ is an heir of God. God isn't an heir of God. You got Romans eight seventeen. Um, Jesus is our intercessor. Uh, The head of Christ is God. I mentioned that in 1 Corinthians 11.3. The head of us is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. That's not a Unitarian idea that that Josh said. No, that's 1 Corinthians 11.3. That's a Paul idea. (laughs) The head of us is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. Um, Jesus said that my Father is greater. On and on and on, there's, there's... hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of verses that show a distinction between Jesus and God. Jesus was in all points tempted. God cannot be tempted. Read Hebrews and James. Uh, you you have a you have a problem with this apparent contradiction that you have to uh, do an isegetical construct and to, to try to make it fit the Trinity. Well, it's the man part of Jesus that was tempted, not the God part of Jesus, because we know about the hypostatic union, and Jesus is fully God and fully man. No, just read Scripture. Scripture doesn't say that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Just stick to Scripture, and you'll find that it teaches two distinct beings. God, who is spirit, and Jesus Christ, who is not spirit. Jesus Christ is a man. God is not a man. Jesus is a man. Two distinct beings that the entire Bible is about. I yield.
0: Sweet. Okay. Um, let me get this up there. Okay. All right, and we've got a lot of questions coming in, so keep those coming in, and we'll be ready for them in about seven minutes. You can also call in if you want to do that. Uh, but let me say this, guys. I think that I think that um, one of the final points as we're summing up this debate, is to really bring it back to, um, in my opinion, the nature of um, the um, the impact that this has on the gospel itself. When we look at the story of the Bible in a big picture, what we, what we see is an overall story of the redemption of man and God's uh, intervention to redeem man. And what we see um, even further is in is 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 in Isaiah or Psalm 47 where it describes um, the uh, the redemption of a man's soul as being something so precious that no man can purchase it. You can't even buy it, and you can't give your own life for it. Um, so if if you take that and you look at the overall picture of what what the gospel story tells us, what God did for the redemption of mankind is something so beyond. The natural realm of what man is even capable of doing it could only be supernatural uh, what we're really describing is the nature of who god is um, and we're describing the nature of who man is and we're describing the ability of what man can do to save oneself and i think the bible is so clear um, that there are three distinct persons within the Godhead, the, the three persons making up the one being who is God uh, and redeeming man as God became man. So the reason that I'd say there's such a defective view on Christ's life and work is because they've got a partial view of Christ. His work of atonement on the cross was but one fa- uh, phase Uh, of his work which began in the creation of the universe we've described this in colossians 1 and john 1 and hebrews 1 all of these uh, passages describe christ as not only being present in the mind of god but literally being present with god and present as god as the hand of god the right arm of god the one who stretched out the heavens the one who formed what God had spoken into existence, and you don't forget the Holy Spirit who breathed life into what was created and formed. When we speak of the greater life and work of Christ, it's it's a circle of of which the circumference is eternity, and the center is Calvary. In tracing the lineage of Jesus in Matthew, it traces him back to Abraham, and Luke traces him back to Adam, and John traces his lineage back to God. Jesus said of himself, and Ken said it as well, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We looked at this in, Hosea, in uh, Hosea chapter 5, and we looked at it in Isaiah, where it talks about Jesus Christ as the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, which is and was and which is to come, the Almighty. He's the, called the Almighty God in Isaiah 9-6. Uh, this is a reference in Revelation 1-8 and one eleven. Jesus identifies himself with God. He confirms his earthly statement, I and my Father are one, in John 10.30. John tells us in John 1.14 that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Not an idea, not a concept, not a principle, not a thought the word, the person, and we beheld his glory, the glory that the Father said he shares with no other, and there's no God beside him. Yet Jesus Christ says in John 17 that he would wishes to be um, returned to the glory that he had with the Father before he came into this world. He describes of himself as being from heaven and him coming down to the earth. And we see that it confirms his statement here, that the glory is as the only begotten of the Father, as the one true God. And in his prayer in the upper room, before going to Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thyself, with the glory which I had before the world was. Uh, So we see Jesus existed before the world was, and he is the eternal Christ. You see, we're speaking of the gospel story, we're speaking of something that's a whole lot bigger than what many of you have probably considered to this point. If you've never considered the identity of Jesus Christ as God, this is this has got to be something that is is really um, something to actually um, consider. And and I think it is. It's a, it's the story of the redemption of man as God entering in um, to the humanity as a man that only God could do, so that He could pay for the sins of man, which, which we know is something that no pure man can do. We, we've seen how that the ability of a mere man to redeem another man's soul is impossible. It can't even be bought. So we see the whole redemption story, it's grounded in the person of Jesus. If you're wrong about Jesus and you have the wrong redemption story, the redemption story that we're speaking of is the gospel itself. And Romans tells us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So you see, this redemption story shows that every single man has a need for a Savior. That Savior is prophesied about from the beginning uh, pages of the Bible all the way to the last pages of the Bible as being the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's a story which shows man needs to be restored back to a place of purity before sin. And the Bible teaches us in chapter 3 of Genesis that he will come of the seed of a woman, showing his human lineage while the book of John describes for us his heavenly lineage. And finally, guys, I'll wrap it up with this. In Isaiah 48, we talked about this. Ken identified Jehovah as being the one who is speaking in Isaiah 48 as the one who laid the foundation. And we see... As, as we look back on this that the Lord God and His spirit sent me, that me is Jesus Christ, the right hand of God, the one who is there with them in the presence of creation, the one who partook in the creation events. But then you see in Isaiah 48 that he's the first and the last as Ken said as well. and he was the one who laid the foundation. He's the right hand of God. He is Jehovah God. He is the only one who is Jehovah saves. He is Jesus, the on- He is Jehovah. He's God in the flesh. He's God who became a man so that man can be redeemed. Ken admits that Jesus was here, that he was present in the creation. But he says he was only present in the thought of God and the plan of God and the prophecy of God. But the Bible teaches us otherwise. He teaches The Bible teaches us that he had glory with God and one day he would return with that glory to be with God again. And that Jesus is the only Savior that can save your soul my Lord and my God, as Philip said, the same confession that I have is the same confession you should have in getting the identity of Jesus Christ. So, with that said, guys, let's. Uh, we're not going to have a clock up now. I'll get you guys back on the screen. Um, but before we go to um, the questions from the audience, I want Tyler hasn't said anything. He he really hasn't had much to do here today. So I'd, Tyler, I want to give you a chance to kind of, if you would, give your thought on maybe the discussion that we've had today and kind of your summarized thoughts. On the identity of christ and the relation to the gospel if you want to if not that's totally fine too
2: no i just want to uh, thank uh, josh uh, to uh, be a part of this um, it's my first kind of debate experience especially in this format and i was really looking forward to it um, i'll be completely honest before we started i wasn't even sure what biblo- biblical unitarianism was um, I already talked to Kenneth Joel previously and I said hey, I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to this because I just want to learn, you know, because technological difficulties on my end, it was kind of hard for me to be in that moderator role, but uh, I had a great time listening and enjoying, you know, the two perspectives and I and I learned a lot. You know, I didn't, I didn't know, especially, you know, and my background was I was raised with parents that would identify with Roman Catholicism, but I would argue that they were nominal and then being an atheist, and then finding Christ later. Um, you know, I guess you could say that I, 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 I was a Trinitarian, I didn't know how Unitarian could make a good argument. So I think that uh, Mr. Joel did Joel did a great job, and uh, I think uh, Joshua also did a great job. I think they've uh, definitely given the audience a whole lot to consider. And uh, I've written down a lot of the questions, and if we don't get the questions, you know, within this format, you know, I'll send them to uh, To uh, Kenneth Joel personally because I really enjoyed uh, um, listening to him. I thought he did a great job. You guys did great.
0: Thank you. Awesome man. Yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, you said. Did you say that you were um, writing the questions down as they were coming in?
2: I wrote down some of my own personal questions. Oh, I see. Okay. And then I've got you know I can see uh, questions online as well.
0: Okay. Um, Okay. So I've I can see the questions online as well, and I'll put them up on the screen. we'll we'll give the priority to those of you who would like to call in with a question that should be up on the screen as well the number is 816-866-0025 and uh when you call in just give your name and who the question is directed to and then we'll go from there but while we're waiting for those questions to come in i i can see the questions online as well and i'll put them up on the screen that's um, so weird i've got an echo coming in right now did you guys hear that Okay, I don't know what the deal was there. Um, Okay, let's see here. Um, Let's go to, I think that, I know Gina has been um, involved a lot in the chat. Tony Lair has, Grace and Truth has. Uh, Question for Kenneth. Let me put this up. It says, um, Would Kenneth exegete, John seventeen five, and now Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had
1: with you before the world was. Sure, uh, great question. Uh, J- John seventeen five is two verses after John seventeen three. First of all, when Jesus identifies his Father as the only true God, uh, this is Jesus. This is Jesus praying. John seventeen is a long prayer, and. Jesus first identifies his father as the only true God, and then he asks his father to restore the glory that I had with you from the foundation of the, of the world. Um, to exegete that scripture, we should just stick to what the scripture says. Stick to what Jesus said. Don't add to it. We shouldn't say that Jesus is saying that he was alive with God, hanging out with God before the foundation of the earth. First of all, if Jesus was hanging out with God, that's not even what the Trinity teaches. The Trinity doesn't teach that Jesus was hanging out with God back in the beginning. That's more Arianism. So that's point number one. Point number two is all it says is Jesus had glory. It doesn't say that he was alive as God. It doesn't say that he was alive as a spirit being. It doesn't say that he was alive as Michael the Archangel or... Uh, Lucifer's spirit brother, it doesn't say that he was alive, it said he had glory, and he did. Jesus Christ, from the very beginning, even before the foundation of the world, he had glory, and he was talking about what is getting ready to happen. He said, okay, restore the glory that I had, because the the glory is the prophetic nature of Jesus Christ is about the redemption of man, that future Messiah is about the redemption of man from the beginning. Jesus was about to get crucified. Jesus was about to die on the cross and be dead for three days and three nights, and then God was going to resurrect him from the dead. And that's the glory that's going to be restored, which is prophetic, even before the foundation of the world, even before Adam was created, and there's a need for a redeemer, even at the beginning of time, God wrote the story in the stars, the the uh, um, uh, the, the constellation of, of Leo. Sorry, guys, it's not about you. It's not about uh, you that were born in that month. It's prophetic of Jesus Christ. It's about His glory. Um, Aquarius, the water bearer, that's prophetic of the story. Um, uh, the the uh, all of the constellation, the story, the the glory of of God. And his son, Jesus Christ, is from the very beginning of time. The the stars tell the story of God and his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was ready to make that happen. Very difficult day ahead of him. And he was ready to make that happen and restore the glory that was from the very beginning of time.
0: Okay, um, and obviously I would take the position that the glory that he had with the Father before he came into this world was uh, an actual glory that he had, not in a thought or a plan um, or some kind of prophecy, um, but that he was actually present with him as, as the Bible says he was present with him um, in the creation in Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, John 1. Um, so that would be the glory that he had, not, not just a glory that he would return to. But we, we've got a caller on the line. This is Tony. And, uh, Tony, we will, I'll turn it over to you, and you can ask your question. Just tell us who it's directed to and, and what your question is. So thanks for calling in.
2: Sure. Uh, you want me to go ahead?
0: Yes, sir, whenever you're ready. Well,
2: this is either, I guess, to uh, Josh or uh, Ken. Uh, John 27, John 20, verse 17, sorry about that, says, basically, um, Jesus said, I have sent unto my father and your father, and unto my God and your God, Jesus is saying he has a God and Father as we do. From what I understand, would either you, Josh, or Ken like to elaborate on that verse? Thank you.
1: Yeah, go ahead, Josh. Um, I've already given the thumbs up, so that's my elaboration. Go ahead, Josh.
0: What was um, what was the verse? John twenty what?
2: Seventeen.
0: John twenty seventeen. Ah, I see. Um, yeah, he says, uh, touch me not, for I am not ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren, and say to them, I ascend to my Father, and your God, and to my God, and your God. Um, so I, I think that this isn't a, a, a description of uh, the the distinction of Jesus Christ as being 100% human and having an, uh, God, the Father, as His father, like obviously, when we describe the nature of the unity of the Father to the Son, we're not describing a paternal relationship. When and that's something that that is really tough to grasp when you're describing the nature of God ontologically and the relation of the Son. I'd really tried to spend um, as much time as I could describing um, the Huios and the begotten, the begotten wording um, in John one and uh, and how that relates to the the relationship of the father to the son you see the father is not the paternal father of of Christ in the sense of of creating him from nothing we're we're literally describing the huios the we the, the and, and I attempted to give the definition of technon versus huios the huios is, is is bringing forth it's something that was brought from something else so the technon is something that's a production um, literally speaking of of the results of um, sexual relations that's never used of Jesus Christ in that sense so when Jesus is speaking here of returning to his father, he's literally speaking of the relationship that he had with him which he talks about um, three chapters prior to this with the glory that he had with him literally with him as God in in the flesh so he's 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 descri- he's describing um, the father as his God he's not he's not He's not distinguishing himself from the Father as God. So I think that would be something that would need to be drawn out more um, in kind of describing the relationship There is one. It's not a paternal relationship. It's, it's a positional relationship, and he's returning back to the Father.
1: Well, I think the question was, um, does Jesus have a God? That was the question. And the verse says, yes, Jesus has a God. He has the same God that we have. Can you guys hear me? Yes. Okay, that's. I can't hear you, Josh.
2: Thank you, guys. Well done. Goodbye.
0: Thanks, Tony. Okay. Um. Sorry, I was talking to Tony there. So, um, we do have uh, open lines if anybody wants to call back, call in with a question. So let me let me go to another question that we've got here. Um, let's see. I see. Okay, so Grace and Truth says this, and then I want to get to one of Gina's questions. It says, what does this mean? You are from beneath, I am from above. Um, I, I, my take on that, I think that it, it literally means um, the nature of where God is, where, where Jesus is from. So I think that he was from above. I think that he came down to earth and uh, became a man humbled himself and clothed himself in the fashion of man and uh, was, was God in the flesh, not the flesh um, blessed by, by God in some sense. So, yeah, I think that that's literally God becoming a man.
1: Okay, well, I, I think that we should stick to what it says and not uh, engage in eisegesis uh, to try to prove our doctrine. I think we should stick to what it says. Uh, there's a difference between coming from below coming from above. Josh left out the below part. Uh, men don't literally come from below. It's uh, obviously figurative language that's talking about the spiritual nature of unbelievers who are of their father, the devil, and believers who are from above, uh, who follow the one true God, our Heavenly Father. Uh, and, and And the verse is making a distinction between the two. It's obviously not literal. It doesn't mean that, uh, the, that the unbelievers um, literally came from below the earth or from hell. It's obviously that they were unbelievers and they were following um, devilish ideas and, and unbelief. And believers are from above. And Jesus Christ is from above. He, he is the anointed... Uh, The light of the world and uh, he he is of his father the one true God the Pharisees are of their father the devil Okay, Um, let's
0: put a question up here from John Bivens he says did Jesus exist in the Old Testament Uh,
1: Yes, Jesus existed in the Old Testament in the mind of God uh, and, and, uh, by the way, that's what Logos means. Logos means, um, logic. Logos means wisdom. Uh, Logos is an expression of, an outward expression of thought. Um, uh, Jesus existed from the very beginning of time in the mind, in, in the mind of God, in the plan. Jesus was the plan from the very beginning. Jesus did not literally exist. Um as God or as a spirit being. He, he uh, is is a man from the line of David.
0: Okay, and I would obviously answer that, that Jesus, Jesus Christ did exist in the Old Testament. He was the God uh, that people saw when they spoke to God. We know that no man can see God and live, and no man has seen God at any time. And yet we see uh, the appearance of uh, Jesus in the Old Testament in the form of an angel or a man, uh, we see him in the immediate context declared to be God or Jehovah. So we have to ask the question: Who was that? We obviously know it's not the Father, um, for the reason I just stated. So um, we we see him. We see him in Exodus 33. We see him in John 6. Obviously, John 6:46, where he's, in in John 8, where he's describing his, um, part, his his actual um role in the Old Testament. And I think that when you look in. In Jude 4 and 5, he literally says that it was Jesus who led the Israelites out of captivity. And if you look at um, it, how, it, how it could be Jesus leading them out of captivity, well, what led them out of captivity? Well, you see you see the Ark of the Covenant, and you see him being led by a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. That's Jesus leading them out, which you can, which you can see uh, from Jude verses 4 and 5. There's no way to get around that. And you see, the elders saw... Um, the God of Israel in Exodus 24. You see, it was the son that Moses worshipped as the angel of Jehovah. He's called the angel of the Lord who appeared to him in a flame of fire. And God called to him out of the midst of the bush. Um, it, it was Jacob who wrestled against Jesus. I mean, you think he wrestled against God the Father? I, I mean, those are questions that I would have. He says that he wrestled Jehovah. So who was that? It was Jesus, the image of God. He's the hand of God, the eyes of God, the ears of God. He's He is literally... The body, um, the image of God as God, and and when we talk about John one, obviously that's something that we could get into later. But let's uh, let's go to another question here. Um, and Tyler, I don't want to just ho- hog it all, man. If you have something that you want to throw in there, just let us know. I mean, be a part of, be a part of this if you want to. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, buddy. Let's see. Okay, so this is something that um, uh, Gina Smith says. She says, Trinitarians always agree with the Pharisees. And I think this is in relation to what Ken was saying in John 8, where the Pharisees um, picked up stones to stone him. Let me read this for you guys. I want you to hear this and get the narrative right. When, when we give the narrative of what's happening in John 8, um, you've, got, you've got four different times that Jesus claims to be the ego I me, the I am. And obviously, the I am is the tetragrammaton in the Old Testament. It's it's a, it's a, something that God. It's the the singularity of the being of God from Deuteronomy six for the Hero Israel. The Lord your God is one God. And then you you see in in Mark chapter twelve that Jesus Christ quotes the exact same verse when he's describing, <laughs> uh, when he's answering the question of who do men say that I am, and uh, when you come to John chapter eight. And in the the conversation that they're having, he's having with uh, the Pharisees, he says, "If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honors me, of whom you say that He is your God. Yet you have not known Him, but I know Him. And if I should say I know Him not, I shall be a liar like to you. But I know Him and keep His saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see My day, and he saw it and was glad. He saw it." and was glad then said the Jews to him you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham so they understood that he's making a claim that he spoke and saw Abraham and that Abraham was glad to see him and what does Jesus say he doesn't rebuke him and say like you fools you don't understand what I'm saying like you you think that I'm saying I was present with Abraham no what does he say he says verily verily I say to you before Abraham was I am He is literally claiming to be the one that moses uh brought to the israelites in egypt when he asked jehovah who should i tell them has sent me and he says i tell them i am that i am sent you and then he says tell them i am sent you the i am is the claim is the identity of jehovah who is jesus jehovah saves that is jesus christ god who claimed to be god in this exact verse so i'm not agreeing with the pharisees there I'm agreeing that the Pharisees uh, recognized the claim that Jesus was making when he claimed to be the I am. So, Ken, I'll turn that back to you, and and you can have a chance to answer if you want to.
1: Well, I already successfully destroyed the I am argument, uh, but I'll repeat it. Um, it. It probably bears repeating. I am is stated 71 times all throughout the Gospels and the Epistles, uh, by many different people, uh, I am, or ego imai in the Greek, does not in any of the verses that it's used. And Gina is correct. Um, this Gina Smith person is uh, very intuitive, she's spot on. Uh, the uh, Trinitarians, uh, like Josh said, uh, the, 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 uh, the Pharisees were right, I mean they understood what Jesus was saying. There's no way you can read the context of these verses and think that the Pharisees were being honorable or trying to understand Jesus or being correct in anything they saw. This is why, um, this is the very reason why Jesus refers to these Pharisees as of their father, the devil, and liars and hypocrites, um, they did not understand. They, they were not even claiming to be understand. And Jesus did rebuke them. Another example is is a, a couple chapters later in John 10. John 10.30, 10 Jesus says, I and my Father are one. What do the Pharisees do? Well, Trinitarians say that the Pharisees understood what Jesus was saying. In John 10.33, the Pharisees say, you being a man, claim to be equal with God. Is that what Jesus said? Yes. Trinitarian. Trinitar- no, it's not what he said. Trinitarians agree. Um, Josh. Josh just agreed with with the Pharisees. So Gina's point is spot on. Correct. You find the Trinitarians agreeing with the Pharisees a lot.
0: Um, okay, I've got another call coming in here. Just a second. We'll take this. Uh, Eric. Hey, Eric, uh, this is Josh, and we've got you live here for your question, if you want to ask it. Um, yeah, it's for uh, Kent there. I'm okay. the one that brought up uh, John 17:5, 5. But um, I'd also go in that John 17:5 5 goes to John 1, 1, 2, 4, in the Greek where it says, uh, and in the logos was aos, God, the word that became flesh that dwelt among us was God. That's good. Um, yeah, I would agree. So if you wanted to form that, put that in a, in a question and direct it to Ken, how would you, um, what would you specifically ask him about that? Um, could he exegete that without, you know, making a nice Jesus? Because it clearly says the Logos, Jesus, the
1: word, is called God in the Greek.
0: Okay. Ken, you want to take it from there?
1: Great question. Uh, I absolutely will engage in exegesis. I will not make it an isegetical construct. Uh, uh, You're you're correct to point that out, that I shouldn't, and I won't. Um, Sorry, I've got to grab some water. Um, There's two things to understand in John 1.1. What does logos mean? If we're going to exegete it, if we're going to get the meaning from the scripture, let's don't pour meaning into it that the words don't mean. Let's exegete. Logos means logic. It's where we get the English word logic from. That's what it means. Now, it's it's not very scholarly to say, no, that's not what it means. Logos does not literally mean God. Logos does not literally mean Jesus. Logos means thought or wisdom. It's, it's an expression of inward thought. Um, it, means, it means logic. So that's what the word is. That's what logic is. That's what logos is. Then we need to understand what God is or who God is. Um, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. Yeah, the caller is right. It says the logos was God. This is very easy to understand. Um, Scripture says that God is love. Yeah, that's awesome. He is love. God is logic. God is divine wisdom existed from the beginning of time. In the beginning was the logos. And wisdom didn't come about with man. Wisdom already existed. Thought wisdom, divine wisdom already existed in the beginning of time. It was with God. And it is God. God is logic, as opposed to the uh, pagan gods, which are muthos. The pagan gods are not very understandable. They're not very logical. Muthos is where we get the word mythology from. Logos is where we get the word logic from. The pagan gods, I think John is making a distinction here between muthos and logos. The, the the mythological pagan gods of that time, of their day, aren't very understandable. But our our Heavenly Father, the one true God, is very understandable, and he is logic, and he has a plan. That's what Logos means. And that plan, down in verse 14, the plan for man's salvation was made flesh. What's that about? It's obvious what that's about. That's about the birth of the Messiah, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, his son. The Logos was made flesh. That's awesome. That's what the entire Bible is about. What John is doing in very beautiful, poetic language is basically summarizing the entire Bible in 14 verses. In the beginning was the Logos, the game plan that we read all throughout the Old Testament. And that Logos was made flesh 2,000 years ago.
0: Okay, um, I'll give a real brief explanation on this. and then uh, we've got another call who has uh, another caller who's called in with a question. So I'll just say this as it relates to um, the logos. And, and obviously we're saying it's the word we're, we're obviously agreeing the word um, was God, the Word was with God. So it's, it comes down to identifying who that word is, what that word is. Is it just wisdom? Is it personification? Is it a thought? Is it a plan? Is it, is it some something that's not tangible? Does it have no thoughts? Does it have no um, sentience? Does it have no will? Does it, what is this? What is it exactly? Is wisdom a part of it? What is it? Okay, so when we look at John 1.18, it says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. And I'll say this. It says, uh, the passage is um, the ending bookend of John's prologue, The Word Was God the only begotten son who is always in the bosom of the father. He has explained him. John makes the assertion that God the father is invisible and the only son and G, uh, and John presents the son as distinct from the father is an in intimate fellowship being continuously at the father's bosom. John also points out that uh, it's the unique verse 26 um, God the Son, the eternal word made flesh, who explains, verse 27, um, the Father. So you've got ohon as it relates to John's recurring presentation of the preexistence and deity of the person of the Son, as you see in one one a 1-3, and one one ten. The apostle now affirms the Son's timeless existence in the bosom of the Father when you see in the phrase menogenes huias ohon eiston uh Callpon to Patros, only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father the articular principle Ohon, who is, is used to affirm the very same thing as in John 1, 1b namely the person of the son preexisted with the father, pros with, not just in the thought of or the plans or some prophecy, but actually present with the father Um that's a brief answer, but I think it's it'll do for now, so let's um Let's turn it over to our caller and just say state your name and what your question is, if you could. Can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you just fine. Uh,
2: my name is Michael. Um, my question is for Ken. Uh, I would like him to explain Revelation twenty two twelve through twenty one and why is Christ affirming names like I am the Alpha me and the Omega, uh, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end. And how do you view that passage?
0: Okay. Perfect, thanks Michael And uh, if you want to hang on, you can If you want to hang up, um, that's fine as well I don't know if you wanted to interact with his response or not But Ken, we'll turn it over to you
1: Revelation 22, I think it's quoting Isaiah, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> Revelation twenty two thirteen. I am the Alpha and the Omega The Beginning and the End The First and the Last uh, That's Jesus That's, that's uh, quoting Isaiah 41, 4 it's about the father
0: um okay yeah i would say um when jesus it, i've got to jump on this this is something that we were that we were talking about when we were when we were um talking about the identif- identification of who is the first and the last because whoever the first and the last is that person is responsible for the creation of the world so if we've got someone claiming to be that, they're either a liar or they are that person. So what we've got to identify is who is speaking here. And what we, when we identify who that speaker is, we're going to have to be able to, to actually t- take a stand and make the statement. Like this person is either lying or they are actually that person. So when I take the position that Jesus Christ claims to be the I am, that Jesus Christ claims to be the first and the last, when he claims to be the alpha and the omega, when he claims to be the beginning and the end, he is that person who is claiming to be the creator, um, who was present in the creation with the father, just like John 1, just like Colossians 1, and just like Hebrews 1 says he was. So I would say that's about Jesus Christ, who is Jehovah God, who was actually present there and is responsible for the creation and uh by him all things consist. So that'd be my answer. Let's see. I know we've got a lot more questions that have come in. Let's let's go to two more and then we could probably wrap it up from there. I, we've got one from uh, John Nansen who says, "What do you make of 1st Timothy 3:15 regarding authority?" I think that's uh not really relevant to um, the topic, but let's see. 1st Timothy 315, which is it? Maybe maybe 16. Yeah, I think it might be. Oh, no, he's, I I think he's making a reference to um, Catholicism and getting an interpretation for who would be correct. I'll answer that. Yeah, go ahead, if you want to answer that. So who would be the authority there?
1: If, that's a great question. Uh, 1 Timothy 3.15 is about the Church, the, the Church of God. Uh, Roman Catholics say, uh, not the Catholics, the Roman Catholic Church, the, the leadership, say, here's evidence that truth comes from us because the Church of God is the pillar and the foundation of truth. So that must mean that truth comes from the Church. Um, it's amazing that Roman Catholics have have built so many beautiful cathedrals all throughout um all throughout europe uh half the world um and they don't know what a pillar does it's it's fascinating to me what what paul is talking about is that truth comes from god and the church of god us we are the church um, the body of believers the church is the pillar and the foundation of truth. We are supposed to hold up the truth. It doesn't say anything about truth coming from the church. It says that we are to hold up the truth. That's my understanding of it.
0: Okay, let's do two more questions and then we can wrap it up and go from there. If somebody wants to call in, you can. Um, we've got another one from Grace and Truth that says, can Ken address John 14, eight and nine? Which I'll read it if you want me to. It says, uh, Philip says to him, "Lord, show us the Father." And it sufficed us. Jesus says to him, "Have I been with you so long? Uh, been so? Have I been so long time with you, and ha- and yet you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how say you then, show us the Father?"
1: Yeah, this is this is very interesting because um, Unitarians and Trinitarians agree that Jesus isn't the Father. So. Jesus, can you show us the Father? Well, if you've seen the Father, then you've seen me. Well, uh, unless you're debating um, the oneness apostolics uh, you know, that are engaging in modalism, uh, they, they, they believe that Jesus is the Father. That Jesus um, is the Father, and then he changes modes, he becomes uh, the Son. And then Jesus changes modes again, and he becomes the Holy Spirit. Um, neither Josh or i believe that jesus is the father josh is a a trinitarian so he believes that uh, jesus and the father are two distinct beings i'm sorry two distinct persons they're the same being but they're two distinct persons i believe that they're two distinct beings and two distinct persons Um, but hopefully hopefully that made sense uh it's obviously figurative when when My grandmother, let me put it this way, my grandmother used to say, Kenny, when I see you, I see your daddy. Well, I wasn't confused. I was a little guy. I was was a little young guy. I understood exactly what she was saying. Kenny, when I see you, I see your daddy. Well, my grandmother didn't think that I was my dad. (laughs) Same figure of speech. That's what's going on in that verse.
0: Um, obviously, I would take the position um, that Jesus is claiming to be seen. Um, the Father is claiming to be seen when they are seeing Jesus. And I think this is a claim to equality with God. And uh, obviously, there, it would be a reference back to when Christ took on the flesh, the human form. He didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. Um, so when Jesus says that, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, have you been with me so long? And you don't know who i am he's literally claiming equality with the father so um obviously i think i've made my case to say that um jesus is present in the old testament we haven't we haven't seen um, really much of a rebuttal on that except that well he was present as as a plan or an idea or a prophecy but not as a person um but i would say that obviously this is this is a claim of equality and. And this will be a good transition for our last question here. This is from Fabian E. Um, he, there's, there, it's a two-part question. He says, Does the Unitarian believe that we can worship and pray to Jesus? And he says, um, uh, There was a follow-up on that. I can't f- find it. Here's my full question. Does the Unitarian believe we can pray and worship Jesus alongside the Father without saying he is God? Thank you. And I think that'll be our last question. And then we'll wrap it up from there, guys.
1: All right, cool. Uh, I can't speak for all Unitarians. I think that there are Unitarians that say uh, we shouldn't pray to Jesus. We should only pray to God. Um, I disagree with those Unitarians. I think we can pray to Jesus. We should worship Jesus as Lord, which is what Scripture says we should do. Uh, we shouldn't worship him as God, because that would be idolatry. Um, making God into a man is idolatry. I mean, Paul defines idolatry in Romans one twenty-two and 23. It's foolish to make God into a man. Uh, so we shouldn't worship Jesus as God. We should worship Jesus as Lord. And to the question, can we pray to Jesus? I think we can. I predominantly pray, Heavenly Father, And then the prayer, and in the name of your son, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But I also speak to Jesus. He's my mediator. If if he's my mediator, the mediator between me and God, I I should think that I would be able to have a conversation with him and pray to him and speak to him. He is alive. Uh, He sits at the right hand of God. Uh, And I think he hears my prayers. Uh, He's also my advocate. If I can't communicate with with my lawyer... Uh, uh that that wouldn't make much sense to me. so so uh, again, I can't speak for all Unitarians, but I I, I, I pray to Jesus.
0: Um, okay, so obviously my response would be um, anything uh, that takes the place of worship as uh, worship that's designated for God and for God alone is idolatry. So when we pray to Jesus, we're 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 commanded to pray to Jesus. We're commanded to worship Jesus. We're commanded, um, um, we're commanded to like bow down to Jesus. We're literally told that every knee and every tongue is going to bow to the Lord Jesus and confess that He is Lord. Um, now, what I would say is when we when we worship Jesus, it's not the same worship that you use when you worship. Uh, when you bow before a king, or you show respect to someone in some cultures, um, that's not the worship that we're talking about. We're literally talking about the worship that is designated for the one true God. And anyone who takes the position that we can and we should pray to Jesus and worship Jesus, just not as God, but Him the same praise and worship and prayer that is designated for God and God alone, that is idolatry. And that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And uh, I think that's ultimately the, the distinction that we're drawing between the Jesus that I worship and the Jesus that Ken worships um, is, is still answering that question. Is this man God in the flesh? Who is this Jesus? And I think that question was answered when Jesus, when Jesus asked that question to his disciples when he said, Who do men say that I am? And they said, Some say Elijah, some say Moses and he said who and who do you say that i am and they said i believe that thou art the son of god i think that's what it comes down to guys is uh the identity of jesus christ as the son of god what does that mean and anything less than worship designated for god himself is idolatry that's why um, for all all of these reasons jesus christ is no less than god he's equal with god he is god he he's he is the one who um was present and uh, responsible for the creation so guys i know we've got more questions that are still coming in but um i I do really appreciate you coming on ken i think it was a good conversation it was fun i had a good time tyler thanks for coming on again man and i do want to give um tyler a chance to have the the last word so i know you haven't had a chance to say a whole lot but um if you have anything you'd like to to say to just kind of wrap it up you've got the floor man
2: well, I've got uh, John 10, 28 through 30 pulled up, and I think that's been mentioned a couple of times, but it's uh, just one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite set of verses. That's uh, one of the reasons that I I personally hold the view that Jesus Christ is like, like, um, like Joshua said, my Lord and my God, because he says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I'm just not personally convinced that... Um, you know a man can give me eternal life that god would have to give me eternal life and he continues on to say that my father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand so my biggest takeaway is that i, I feel that i'm believe that when i called upon the name of the lord to be saved i was a drug addict sinner an adulterer a blasphemer an idolater and when i called upon the name of, um, of lord jesus christ um, I experienced a personal miracle where he changed my heathenistic desires into desires for righteousness, and uh, I, I firmly believe that um, he's the one that's giving me my eternal life and purchased me. So
0: That's good, man. Hey, um, guys, I really appreciate you being willing to do this and to put this on. Thank you guys who are viewing. Um, I, I really appreciate it. If you would, obviously, um, please subscribe if you haven't already. Um, we're on YouTube and, and Facebook and Twitter and Periscope and a, and a bunch of other video platforms, but it'll it, it'll be on all the audio platforms as well. Um, so if you think this was a good conversation to have and, you, and someone else should hear it, please share it. And uh, that would be great. You can also write in at TalkingChristianityApologetics at gmail.com with a question, or you can uh, text that number 816-866-0025. And... Um, that'll be it so Ken if you had something you wanted to say as uh, your final word um, I'll cut to my closing scene after that and I'll catch up with you guys once I wrap up this um, so we can kind of debrief a minute if you want to
1: yeah I'll just say uh, thank you very much for having me Uh, it was a spirited and and fun debate I enjoyed it Uh, hopefully we can do it again if if you guys would like Um, maybe another month or two maybe maybe do it again Um, I enjoyed it and I wanted to tell everybody God bless you all in the powerful name of His Son Jesus Christ.
0: All right, sounds good, guys. I'm going to cut to the closing scene here, and if it will, cut to it, and let's. Uh, I'll give you an update on what's coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, so next week, um, next week I've got Edward Dalcor is coming on, who uh, pretty much he's got a ministry that's really focused on the identity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, and um, That is going to be a really good conversation. So some of the material that I used in this debate came from Edward. Um, So that'll be a good conversation. Then following that, uh, Keith Piper um, from Australia is going to come on. He and I have been talking about the Trinity. And right now he was telling me last night that they've got a revival in Uganda uh, where there's 20,000 Mormons who are having a conference right now um, with uh, some of the guys from his church and his ministry. Um, showing them that Jesus is the Bible. Um, and it's it's a, it's a really good thing. So be praying for what they're doing over there right now and for that ministry and for everyone who needs to know who Jesus Christ is as it's related to the gospel story. Um, then uh, we've got a roundtable discussion on dispensationalism that um, is still in the works. Uh, and there's some other stuff. There's some other good conversations that are coming up as well. But that'll do for now. So stay tuned and... Uh, We'll catch up with you later. So God bless, guys, and have a good one.